Well, hello and welcome to another session of the Corona Committee. It's our 147th uh, session and um, it's uh, Maxine Gates, Gates actually standing for a scandal and we can see that what is panning out in the media is a scandal which is uh, being uh, expanding all the time. Um, another one has been added with the block gate um, that um, we will talk about later on and a, a climate gate or corona gate. We'll see what else is coming down the line. Uh, otherwise, well, we're uh, just trying a new camera setup. We have two new cameras now, different cameras now. We'll see what the effect is, and um, you can let us know whether uh, you like the visual or not. And by way of introduction, I wanted to um, say a few words of introduction. But first of all, I would like to uh, welcome Dr. David Jungblut, a former public prosecutor, a former judge. It's good to have you here. We have a few more items to speak about. Uh, first of all, I wanted to say something. I wanted to say uh, something if I may here at this point, to the colleagues in uh, our uh, party, there will be a national convent at the end of the month, and it would be really great if the largest number of members possible could come to this convent, because on the one hand, it's always better to uh, see each other in person than only to uh, talk digitally, and then also because it's about uh, the election of a new board, and um, it's important to have a large number of people there. Uh, we'll have to uh, discuss about digital uh, elections. And uh, now, uh, due to legal requirements, we have to do this on site. And that's a good thing, I think. But I hope that a large number of people should come. So there's not only a small number of people who um, can cast their vote. So we would like to have the widest democratic base as possible for the next board. Um, and hopefully it can be a, a local one. So um, watch it. Um, you can register for it as well. A number of people have already, but of course you can register um, still, and it would be great if we had a large number of participants there. Then another couple of points that I uh, find important as well. Recently, I have uh, made the experience uh, that asking questions is really very important, um, which is what we do here, but also in other situations, it's also uh, crucial in the basis and the um, basis party uh, or in group sessions that you always have this culture of questioning, a questioning culture that allows any factual question uh, that keeps you on your feet um, where you can think about whether an important indication can be given that something might have been uh, forgotten. And I think in groups, we oftentimes have uh, dynamisms, um, as we've seen them here as well, where you simply uh, dog-headedly go in the same direction, develop a, a tunnel vision, and you don't ask any questions looking uh, left or right. 
Um, they may be, of course, stumbling blocks, but sometimes these stumbling blocks indicate the big hole at the end of the way. So I think we have to be open to this, and I think the role of the analyst or controller, as they uh, call it in New German, I think that is something that we uh, need to value much more highly. And um, we have to uh, be able to say, look, I mean, uh, look right there, there's something uh, brewing, uh, take a look there, rather than just um, barging ahead, uh, dog-headedly. So that's important, I think, and we should uh, keep thinking about that. Today we have guests, two guests, actually, who deal uh, with, uh, well, one guest is a uh, an engineer who will uh, speak about the um, problem of the PCR tests and the plasmides that were mentioned in the last session. And then uh, we have a former senator who will speak about questions related to the energy crisis and the uh, climate crisis. This session will be a bit shorter today. And um, uh, let me uh, say um, that uh, today is my birthday. It doesn't mean that everybody uh, should congratulate me, but um, that's the reason why it's a bit shorter today, because there are two uh, humans, two small humans, and uh, an animal, um, a pet animal, also uh, should have a special day today. So that is why I can't stay, uh, make myself available all day long today. Well, otherwise, um, last comment, I had uh, posted it on the Telegram channel already. I, it is important to me that the committee with its um, important and uh, condensed results remain available to people that they're not shelved. Um, I can see that other alternative media do great content, produce great content, and then they don't keep it uh, online all the time because they can't afford it, actually. And so you don't know really what happens behind the scenes. And sometimes you can't really access this important uh, contribution and um, it, it may um, fall by the wayside. And that's one of the important aspects of this committee um, to make sure that all the content uh, be continuously available to people. Uh, the archive um, that we're building up and that is supposed to grow. So against this background, I would be happy to see your support so that we can continue uh, doing this. It will certainly remain that way. I will uh, certainly uh, not allow these, this content to be um, put behind digital barriers or anything or pay barriers. So uh, now I'll give the floor to you, David, and maybe you can uh, say a few things that have kept you uh, on your feet in this context over the last few weeks. Yes, well, thank you, first of all, for the invitation and 
congratulations for your university in front of the camera. Um, I have my own experience to share, maybe, but that is something I need to drill down into. One thing I'd like to pick up is uh, the asking of questions. That's an experience or thought that I've been thinking about for a couple of time, for some time, that um, we can have a lot of talk, but uh, not much happens, and people are not very open. And I think it's a good point if you want to get into exchange. It is good to ask questions to the people rather than stating things. It's a different way of communication. It's not just coming on like a teacher, but it uh, triggers thought processes which are much more creative. Um, if you ask a question to someone, the reflex of the human brain or human mind is to try and answer that question. And that makes it more efficient than just presenting facts to people and um, confronting them with it, because it starts this uh, way of thinking in the other person and you may get answers that you didn't expect that you didn't see and so that helps you again in getting along so it's much more helpful asking question uh, questions and coming along with your own way that's a way of practice as well i tend to just tell the people what i think is right first and that implies in a certain way that um, uh, i think i know everything uh, so I'd just like to support uh, this. It's a bit of practice. You have to get into your communication to ask questions to people. And uh, maybe the big uh, philosopher Socrates may help here, who only asked questions as far as I know. He just went to the marketplaces and asked and asked and asked again. And uh, by that, he uh, made people, he drove people mad, which is not what we want to do. but. Um, that's a pragmatic way to do these things. Uh, although Socrates took a bad end, um, maybe still he will serve as a role model, or at least as communication can. And another point that I could uh, make here is, I don't know if it's been verified. A couple of days ago, I read that in Hungary, the forced membership of the doctor's chamber has been lifted. They have a similar system as we have here with Dr. Che, doc, uh, medical chambers, doctor's chambers. So if you are in that profession, um, you start as a freelancer and uh, then you are submitted to the uh, mandatory membership of a respective chamber. Um, we have this with lawyers and uh, pharmacists in Germany. And um, we had someone here, um, a lawyer, not long ago who mentioned this. And these chambers do play a dubious role, as we have seen in the past uh, three years, uh, helping in the execution of what the federal government asked everybody to do. So we can't really 
see much autonomy and resistance in them, and uh, it's always very, very questionable if things are mandatory, and that applies to that uh, mandatory membership as well. You can wonder why you have that, and I can only answer that question for lawyers. There was a decision in the 1950s of the uh, Constitutional Court in Germany, which in all its wisdom, um, in brackets, um, says this is right and saying it is uh, not right to work as a freelancer without being part of the professional chamber. And especially with doctors, the question is whether that is true if we look at the background of the past few years. And uh, the question is, of course, whether this does not limit them, the doctors themselves and the patients, because the doctors were submitted to massive pressure and um, I think this is why the Hungarian government said we have to scrutinize this and as long as it's not clear to see the role that the chambers took, um, uh, nobody has to be forced to be a member and that's a question that we could ask for the German uh, professional chambers as well because over the past two, three years we have seen them playing a very restricted role, at least. I don't know, I haven't heard about a protest or questioning or scrutinizing uh, politics. On the contrary, professionals were put under pressure. Ralph Ludwig reported that he had a dispute with the uh, Chamber of Attorneys. We have mentioned this here a number of times that the system is rotten in his structure in its structures. We can say that it's all the um, different sources of power, including the professional associations and chambers. And so there should be the question that we look at um, if we could stay and out or if it is not asked seriously um nothing not much is going to happen so i decided to try and get out and fight this through of course it's a problem if you do this alone and um this is why the idea and the question i have to the colleagues is whether we could not form a coalition and the same thing may hold true for doctors as well and uh, we could start it diplomatically um handing respective applications uh, to parliament to do this at least on a temporary basis and lift the mandatory um, membership. So if people were interested, uh, that would be very good. And uh, we'd be happy to hear from you. Yeah, and uh, maybe we could just uh, throw a stone in the water here. And um, I have to admit that what I hear from the professional chamber of attorneys um, unnerves me a bit, I have to say. What do I get is a newsletter which informs me about things I don't really want to know. And I have to... Well, that's that's the benefit side. 
and I have to pay a fee. I have to pay the um, social security. Maybe that's a help in terms of pension, but that's a bit strange way of pensions where the uh, well-paid uh, lawyers, at least the ones who are well-paid, that excludes me, um, um, are out of the solidarity uh, community, um, just like the dentists and the architects and uh, the pharmaceuticals do this. So that's a question we could wonder about as well. Uh, the pharmacist was a word I was missing. And um, this uh, mandatory use of this digital mail for attorneys and lawyers, um, the same applies here. If something is good and helpful, I have no uh, doubt and um, nothing against uh, digitization. We are benefiting from it right now with this session here, but if things start to get off the track, the alarm bell should go on. And in my opinion, that lawyers are now forced to use that uh, digital mail in their um, correspondence with the uh, courts. Uh, if you submit this by uh, letter or by fax, or if you just hand it in personally to them, it is counted as not delivered. And I think that's a scandal and that there's no resistance on the side of the lawyers is something that's very uh, poor, I think. Um, this is a mandatory system that we have to look into. And if we look at digital systems, we have to see the risks that these incur. And um, um, of course, I am not very surprised that this is being started in the lawyers because they are very uh, submissive. And um, you can just put pressure under them, put them under pressure. Uh, if you don't use that, um, you miss your deadlines. And then, of course, lawyers have a problem because they have to explain that to their clients. Um, they may be liable. And um, it's a very perverse way of doing this, but it is just an opener for the upcoming development. And this is something that none of the chambers uh, discussed critically. Um, the question is, yes, we have to do that um, in the software ways. It is critical in, um, in, in data security. And I think this is very necessary to look at. The, there was hacker computer clubs who invested, uh, investigated this and found big gaps. And of course, uh, it is highly sensitive uh, data that we have here. And if you're forced to use a certain software, um, you may have to maybe forced to accept the data security gaps. And in addition to all of that, and I think that's worst of all, that this uh, software has to be installed on your own computer. And that means that the person who does the administration has the opportunity to look at your computer with all its data. So there is quite a big and number of serious aspects that have to be looked into. And uh, this is part of the jobs of the chambers to scrutinize this and discuss it. And uh, I'm, I'm just being polite here. Um, 
So there's a number of reasons why one should really question the membership in this type of chamber. Okay, so that was uh, quite a bit of the topic which wasn't planned, but still. Well, I think it's an interesting topic after all. Um, there's this association, um, Physicians Association Hippocratic Oath, which is not a um, obligatory um, organization. It is an organization that would like to treat uh, physicians differently or who would like to work uh, according to the uh, Hippocratic Oath, uh, treating their patients accordingly. Um, that's a number of physicians who got together, and I think that's a good initiative. And I remember that Wolfgang Vodak, for instance, said that within um, the uh, uh, physician's uh, profession, uh, you can, of course, uh, see different camps, and uh, you could uh, form individual groups that can then, of course, submit petitions. And that is something that we might use as well. Um, so uh, there might be a, sort of a mixed situation. I don't know how many um, lawyers have been uh, harassed in Germany for criticizing um, COVID measures. Um, I don't know if it's that many. We've heard from Renate Holzeisen that she has been harassed very se uh, severely. I have been reprimanded several times over as well. Um, people claimed that they couldn't find my um, play card outside the door, um, and they claimed that I didn't uh, even exist, um, that sort of thing. And then another couple of things that were similar in a similar vein. But otherwise, I haven't really been harassed, which is, of course, gratifying because uh, I didn't have to um fight another war or some pseudo stress now i can see that wolfgang has arrived in the zoom uh, wolfgang maybe you can't hear us yet um, um but we have a nice uh, still life there i wanted to uh, make another point concerning the questions um, children learn by asking that is really um, in people's nature to understand the world and the questions take you to a point again and again where you can take a fresh look at things i think it's really important that within groups there be uh, new additions from outside uh, particularly with larger groups so we don't have this uh, one troublemaker who keeps talking but he should be, uh, you know, this individual should be heard as well, of course. So, and that makes it interesting if you remain open there. And asking is not such an offensive thing, actually. If I go in, uh, I might ask, of course, what bullshit are you doing here? And that might not be an attractive question, but it's also not so helpful. But it might be easier to ask questions and to remain factual and uh, uh, rather than going in and saying, oh, um, this is stupid and I have a better idea. But uh, to ask, like, uh, what did you decide here? Could this be a, a risk or whatever? That might be helpful. Maybe one more point. This shows an interest in the opinion of the other person if you don't ask aggressively. And uh, I think it opens both sides an opportunity to win. As I said, I find it difficult at times, but I think it's the most uh, efficient way. So maybe addressing the audience, I think it's great to have questions here because uh, often I think, why didn't I come up with that question? It's very good. And um, this is the smartness of the masses, really that we could use to go on.
Let me make a comment in this context. Well, we, we uh, had this special uh, asking tool, questioning tool, and we realized that in the chats, uh, people ask good questions, and usually people aren't active in, on both sides. It's a bit more, uh, a bit trickier. So um, if you want to ask a question, you can do that in the chat, and um, that will be passed on to us because the asking tool uh, other uh, good questions that are asked in other locations are lost. So that's what I want to point out. And also uh, some things that I wanted to uh, mention, some questions have been remained have remained unanswered. We'd like to collect them. Uh, we have tried that. Um, we haven't been following up um, on all the individual questions and if uh, some questions have remained unanswered. We will make sure that we can get answers to some of those questions by experts so uh, that they will then be also available in the um, archives uh, for the um, um, corresponding uh, sessions. Now I'd like to ask Wolfgang Wodak, how are you? Everything fine there? You're, you're still muted. I'm a bit late. Hello, everybody. Anyway, unfortunately, I was a bit delayed. I couldn't come in on the spot. Yes, but I'm doing fine. Um, I'm going to come to Germany, and there's lots of opportunity to meet many people. I'm looking forward to that, and uh, surely that's going to be very interesting. If you have to do half of your life in Zoom, you miss a certain dimension, and I'm looking forward to real life. Yes, absolutely, so do we. Um, meeting in person is really what is the most um, gratifying thing. Okay, we have another... Um, clear and present but not physical encounter with our first guests uh, of the day. I heard that he's with us already, Dieter Quartz. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. And I hope you can hear and see me as We can well. hear you but not see you yet. Um, uh, maybe we can get this sorted. Switch to the large screen. Now we can see you. Okay, great. But the image is very, very dark, um, at least on the small screen. I don't know what it looks like on the large screen. No, it seems to be okay. For us here, you uh, appear a bit dark, but I think it's okay. Great. Um, good to have you. You're a, a, an engineer, and you are also um, a trainer. Maybe you can tell us something about your background? Yes. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation to this great uh, session. And uh, congratulations to you as well. Yes, congratulations on your birthday. Right, yes. Okay, I didn't know that. Uh, um, I brought Gates uh, as a birthday present, uh, as you has announced. So I may elaborate a bit on what you've just said. I am a trained chemist, uh, sports scientist, and I've um, 
locked uh, a lot in um, performance physiology um, my vita is a bit uh, a freelance uh, life artist with inhomogeneous spots uh, i have worked in many different areas uh, i could learn a lot in that uh, in high professional sports and in laboratory as well. I worked in the Institute for uh, Biochemistry, um, Doping uh, Chemistry. I worked there um, as a small helper and uh, started my professional experience in that way. I uh, did a lot of investigative journalism in the 90s, in the 90s as well. Um, that was in the context of doping and professional sports, especially cycling. I'm a passionate cyclist as well. Um, I still do a lot of cycling and I have good connections until today. And doping is, of course, a direct connection to pharmacology, uh, pharmacology genetics and pharmacodynamics and this has got overlaps with what uh, we have the microbe circus in 2020 um, that was omnipresent to all of us and uh, in that context i looked at the old investigative uh, research work that i did in the past and dug into that and i came to interesting findings which are now uh, being presenting and emerging in the past few weeks when i looked at the pfizer and biontech approval processes and uh, by accident really i uh, tripped um, on what is uh, discussed as blockgate now in uh, opposition uh, areas and I worked into that and in the beginning of the week I um, started with that. Well, it's a very interesting um, article. We'll link it. It has been uh, published in Klartext. Uh, it's very important and very interesting, very extensive, very exhaustive. And um, people can read up on what you're going to tell us now. Um, if you like, um, I'd be very interested in hearing more about it. Yes, in uh, the announcements you talked, uh, you said that I would talk about the PCR test. That's not quite correct. No, I was going to say about the test and the overall problems related with it. Sorry. Yes, but there is a certain connection. When I started in 2020 uh, to look at the Drustnet Al paper, I wondered, of course, that was uh, biocomics, uh, not biochemists, who did that. Um, and I had a certain deja vu when I looked at the approval documentations, uh, respectively, what Pfizer Biotech. Uh, um, submitted for approval and um, as uh, laboratory practitioners um, I worked a lot in that in clinical research as well I was stunned with what I saw um, if, if we saw these uh, lots which is a product verification really um, to give you some background an explanation why is these western blots uh, so important and how it worked out that these blots um, um, occurred in the documentation we have to know that our fda the approval authorities um, get the 
person or the entity that brings a product to market do not only uh, need the manufacturing practices in a way by way of audit, but they want to know, especially if pharmacological substances are concerned, um, they want to see the effect and the reproducible effect. That was one of the requirements that they had in the audits. And in January 21, you had Dr. Vanessa Schmidt-Ruhr in your session. And at the time, she already talked about the AMR procedures and uh, showed the incredibilities of the massive impurities that they had in the large-scale productions of these substances and that the AMR auditors noted this and uh, that um, they had some major objections and specific obligations that they required and uh, showed that there is a rework necessary and as far as the quality management processes are concerned, that's a normal thing, really. And that this wasn't clearly documented at the time, was a scandal as such. And worse so, that all the quality requirements that were faulty at the time and were falsified and certified um, fraudulently, um, were authorized uh, so late after the injection campaign had started. So they applied a medical drug where nobody knew of what's the purification level, what's the impurities included, and um, from the large-scale production, it was not clear what ends up in the vials um, that are injected to the patients. And that is a massive scandal at the time already and now what was uh, discovered now and i'm very grateful for that by the sonia elia from great britain he she's a journalist she did that on her substack publishing it first the so-called bloodgate um and so she talked to a circle of experts and scientists and researchers uh, looking at the documents that uh, Pfizer submitted to the FDA, that was not easy to do. Pfizer-BioNTech altogether uh, uh, submitted 400,000 pages, which is pure madness, and certain um, amounts, uh, chunks of this documentation, 50,000 pages, are released now due to a Freedom of Information Act, and um, large numbers of researchers started to look into this documentation, and there's two pages which are particular importance. There's the Western blots, which were um, published there, uh, showing analyses with these graphics that uh, showed and clearly showed for anybody working in a laboratory that uh, showed that these blots are falsified. So we are talking here of uh, intended fraud. These are things that have been given to um, the um, contracts which were given there and um, here we 
have seen explicitly that if there is intent uh, fraud, there is no exclusion of liability. And that puts a completely new perspective on all the claims and complaints um, of people who suffer from vaccination damage, um, uh, who have been complaining to Pfizer and to courts that this is actually a piece of evidence that we can confront the courts and procurement with, prosecution with. Now, that's uh, unbelievable. Now, may I ask, the 400,000 pages, is that normal? It sounds like, um, sounds interesting particularly against the background that uh, no relevant studies seem to have been performed. Yes, the processes of certifications and approvals for pharma products are quite uh, equivalent. So the principles how these processes work in all in medical products and uh, medical drugs are very parallel. And, uh, so this is why the uh, federal authority um, is a central uh, authority in Germany and um, I have experience with them. It surely shows that the normative regulations have a higher cause, a high bureaucratic workload. But 400,000 pages for a simple, for a single product is exceptional. That's not the standard and it's not necessary, by the way. Uh, this is simply strategies um, that seem to suggest that in this uh, massive amount of documentation, you can simply hide evidence uh, that uh, may be susceptible to attacks. Um, that documents that are falsified in there are simply uh, hidden away amongst the bulk of documentation. If we just open the detail, the assessment reports, or the respective documents where the two Western blocks that were passed on to the um, FDA, uh, it is difficult to see these uh, several hundred pages alone, um, even if you're a professional in the field, and you really have to look each protocol, each test protocol, and uh, trace it back and bring it back together. You have to interpret every single drawing, look in the uh, text that corresponds with it. It is very, very time consuming. And if you think that this has been done under massive time pressure, which was uh, one of the circumstances that this took part in, forcing that this was overlooked, to put it that way, if it weren't uh, intent right from the beginning, it's very, very difficult to really uh, look at these things uh, and find them and um, really nail it down. So um, uh, I think EMA and FDA had a very, very tough job there and a very uh, ungratifying job as well. I think if you were, even if you were a trained laboratorist, uh, you couldn't have uh, seen this uh, right from the start. And we can say, of course, that if I am a staff member at EMA and I get this sort of thing, 
Um, I would have to say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we can't do that. Um, I would say this is unusual uh, to have this kind of scope, and you can expect because it's about the interest of the pharmaceutical manufacturer uh, that they deliver uh, appropriate data and not all this nonsense. So the question arises, when did they start with this? Um, these 400,000 pages have to be produced in the first place. And if I imagine that there's no duplications in there or any uh, Grimm's fairy tales or whatever, but it's all um, related to uh, the facts, but it's all so, um, um, so verbose that you can't really um, see through it anymore. There's a little bit of uh, criminal energy behind it, but also some uh, competence to uh, spread it out over 400,000 pages so that it still seems to make sense and uh, is no good at the end of the day. So to make a, cut a long story short, I think uh, that we can't say that FDA or EMA did the right thing, that the thing worked well. Just from my understanding, how did they pile all that documentation in? Well, as I said, uh, the regulatory uh, normative requirements are indeed very complex. It not only refers to a product verification, but also the quality management uh, systems. Um, they cover all the departments. In other words, uh, in um, production, uh, they go from accounting to um, a final production Everything is covered by this process and is documented. It's all documented, and that is um, perfectly all right uh, because that is due diligence um, in the interest of the consumer. It's uh, perfectly all right, but as I, uh, as you said, you have to prioritize, of course. And if, as a, an auditor at FDA or EMA, I get this kind of file, there's two options that I have: either you reject it. Uh, requiring a data reduction um, so uh, that you get um, the excerpts, the important content, or otherwise you would have to say, okay, you have to bend down with a large number of people to sift through all the uh, data in, in order to see what is relevant. But that is, of course, difficult because 400,000 pages. That's a lot of stuff. But Pfizer is not a company that's a newcomer on the market um, where you could suppose they don't know how to submit this. So that's quite obvious, really, that this was done deliberately. Well, we don't have to discuss this um, and, and be astonished. We know that there was a collaboration here between the authorities and Pfizer. But it's interesting to see anyway. It's an idea to come up with. So they apparently assumed that there would be uh, questions and uh, hiding it that way. I think that is something to it. And uh, if I may ask, you had this Western plots. Uh, that's the core of your article. Could you just briefly explain what that is precisely? I haven't heard of that term before yet, and the audience may not as well. Well, you prepared a presentation. Uh, would it make sense to show it at this point? Yes, I can do that. Uh, I can share my screen and you have the pictures. I don't know if uh, you do it. Well, we discussed that they'll um, split the screen and um, that you share your screen and, and we have um, our technicians as a fallback. 
I think you need to press F5. And then we should get it on the big screen here, if all goes well. You'd have to share the screen. There must be a, a little button at the base. And then there's a new window at the top. Okay, yeah, I have this um, opened. Here we are. And now start the presentation mode. Yeah, selected that. Okay, can you see this? Yes. Yes, we can. Right. Then this is just what you just asked. Now, the first slide is about the original uh, files that were submitted, and I can show you one of these pages. Um, you can see um, this is page 80 from one document that has several hundreds of uh, documents that were submitted to FDA, and you can see here three rows, A, B, and C, um, the so-called Western uh, Plus. That's from uh, protein analysis. Um, it's a process that is used as a standard analysis in molecular biological analysis. It's a very old um, process, uh, first invented in 1974 and has nearly half a, a century of laboratory uh, tradition in application. So it's a well-tried and tested um, methodology where you can actually analyze um, proteins, um, identifying their quantities and their quality in a second stage. Now, what you can see on this page 80, that's one of the very few pages where these uh, Western Plus have been uh, sh shown. And uh, what laboratory technicians found immediately is that it's very unusual what they look like. And you can see it in the uh, article that I wrote. Um, and I've uh, linked, um, uh, included a link uh, so you can see how it is done in laboratory practice. So uh, these uh, proteins are placed on a, a gel carrier, which is then placed into a uh, electrical field. So this triggers a diffusion process where the proteins or the protein mixes are separated according uh, to their molecular weight. And then you get these characteristic band uh, patterns. They're almost like fingerprints. It's a, a forensic treatment of proteins, as it were. And uh, these normal band uh, patterns in the context of the normal Western Plus analysis due to um, secondary effects uh, caused by the carrier material have a um, arc shape and a smear uh, effect. That is classical Western Plus. I'll show you that later on. Now, what is quite striking here is that you have completely accurate um, rectangular geometries of bands, which is completely atypical. That's the first thing that strikes you. Now we have to say, of course, in my uh, laboratory practice was uh, some time in the past, of course, by now automated processes have been introduced that 
have uh, the possibility of um, beefing up the graphic uh, representation. So that would explain the uh, block pattern that we can see here. Now let's move on a bit more. Um, this um, is a um, blow up of graph A and you can see two things that are uh, crucial in the next step. I hope you can see the cursor. Now on the next uh, side we have this uh, classical Western uh, block. Um, and. Um, the uh, working group around Mr. Venu uh, performed a manual, they found a, a manual, a Western, a, a real original Western blot. And there you can see what I described earlier, i.e. this uh, classical Western blot structure uh, with this uh, typical arc form. Um, and you can see, now this is a classical Western blot, and what you can see here uh, clearly, maybe I have to explain this, this column here where it says BNT, uh, etc., that is the serum, as it were, i.e. Uh, the COVID-19 uh, substance, the mRNA that um, Pfizer-BioNTech developed. And with that, they, um, uh, they applied it to um, embryonal uh, stem cells and this uh, spike protein could then be um, made visible in this western plot um, and it left these structures and then they also found uh, subunit S1 I think we heard about this in the last or uh, second last um, uh, session then a marker was also um, carried. This is always done. Uh, you always use a marker protein with a known composition so that you know uh, you have a scale basically. Uh, they are shown according to the uh, scale indicated on the left. So they are indicated as <coughs> reference scales. So you have a quantity, uh, quantity reference and the numbers are indicated in kilodalton. That's a um, molecular uh, mass indication. It's got nothing to do with the daughters of Lucky Luke or something. Um, so it is a uh, molecular weight indicator. And what we can see here, and that was very interesting, after we had these strange uh, Western blots there with this nearly synthetic, um, very precise um, representation here that really uh, would have raised question marks with any uh, laboratory technician. It was even more um, strange to uh, see that this um, manual Western blot was uh, unearthed, and I tried to see whether they actually um, uh, represented this on this uh, on the left-hand side here. Um, in uh, the right scale. And um, you can see in the digitized Western blots, the uh, pattern is shown quite exactly in um, kilodalton where you would expect them. And the expected value for the spike protein, I'll show it later on, from the modified mRNA um, by uh, Pfizer-BioNTech um, um, 
has a uh, kil, uh, kilodalton, 141 kilodalton, uh, so 140 around about. And you can see in the manual uh, was a blot. There's no band here. If if there is any, you can only see a hint of it. It's a very uh, a light band. So there's very little of it there, in other words. On the other hand, you can see that there are very strong bands at about 100 and about 190, where you wonder, of course, what is that now? Because it's obviously not what we're looking for. Now, the right western plot uh, doesn't really match the um, digitized one on the left-hand side, so these are um, inconsistencies that require explanation. You can also see it with the second um, pattern, the second tranche at the top, on the left-hand side, it's at about 210, 220. On the right-hand side, at about 190. So that doesn't really match either. Um, very briefly, why there are two spike variants that are shown here. Uh, the second one is the glycolized, uh, glycolized uh, variant. So a protein with some uh, sugar uh, component. It's simply a special form uh, in which these molecules are uh, sometimes packaged in. So this is the first indication that something isn't quite right here. And um, at least it requires a lot of explanation here. And now it gets particularly interesting. As I said, 141.14 uh, kilodalton. I highlighted it at the base here. That should have appear, uh, occurred. And you can see this uh, quite clearly in the digitized blots, not in the manual one, though. And if we move on to the next slide, this is extra imp uh, important now. Uh, the Americans uh, called them cartoon Western blots. Um, that's the name they give to these um, this representation. They took a very close look at those blots again. What did they do? In, on the uh, first line here in uh, graph A, you see uh, that's from the original FDA document, by the way. There are four different batches that were analyzed with six different concentrations for two different proteins. And if you uh, take the uh, um, axiom of um, probability um, from stochastic uh, mathematics, then you know that you can multiply these figures and you get an expected value. You would um, probably produce 48 unrelated band intensities. Now, what was done here, um, an uh, image processing software was used. It's called ImageTray. These various um, rec uh, rectangles were magnified, and uh, the uh, distances between the individual pixels and the uh, gray shades have been analyzed. So you have these frames that were put around them, and then these frames were analyzed. Uh, on um, the um, y-axis, you have the um, gray scale, and on the uh, x-axis, the uh, distance, uh, distances, and then you get this uh, value of the uh, patch that you analyzed. And of course, so, 
uh, certainly uh, some experts will say these excerpts here are not complete, uh, completely um, over the entire um, band plots. Uh, so they go beyond the plots a bit, and that would actually um, destroy the analysis. And if you do it in more um, detail, there's not much um, falsification there. And if you go into more detail um, into the individual blot patterns, you can see shades of the pixelation that are actually um, representative of different concentrations in different uh, batches for different proteins. And statistically, that is simply impossible. It's not, no can do. So uh, what was done down here, um, scientists from the US, who looked at that, they marked these peaks in different colors so that you had uh, peaks of a similar intensity and pixel composition um, were given the, the same uh, color and letter uh, combination. And you can see uh, these aren't 48. You can immediately see that's much fewer than 48 different uh, such peaks. And it's particularly interesting that even the combination of these peaks sometimes repeat. So it's not only that there are uh, too few individual ones, but also that they are oftentimes identical. And even the combinations are, um, the, the, the combinations of different batches and concentrations are still um, identical. This uh, should have happened in a uh, proper laboratory analysis. You can see here G, E1, E2, it uh, recurs here with a different batch and a different concentration. Or here, these, these um, bar with H1, H2, it recurs in a different batch. So this is statistically absolutely absurd what was done there. The only explanation for this is how this um, could have happened is that um, copy and paste was used here from certain images or parts of images, and they were simply then uh, put back into uh, the Western blots um, with different, uh, with um, image processing software. So you can see that this is manipulation. And the question is, how come? Why would they manipulate it? May I ask a question? These uh, top line that we have there <clears throat> is to suggest that it is a kind of manual assessment. That's what they want to show with this um, extraordinary form compared to the other manual uh, view that you showed us, that this it's supposed to be the same thing. Is that right? It should show the same thing, yes. So if you look at the automated variant that you can see here, if you've done that, and then you compare it to the manual uh, variant, then um, you would have a um, proof, basically, you should get the same result, and it didn't happen. So the the uh, where this emerged, 
And you say it's possible that these squares are square because it's a automated way of working, but the uh, peak should be with the sa same peak should be at the same place, right? Precisely, yes, yes. So if we just assume that this was a fake, the, it's incredible. Somebody would have had to sit down and take their Photoshop and uh, do these little things which they have shrunk to somehow realistic or half realistically put them in there as a possible result. Is that right? Precisely. And I'll get back to your question later on because then we get to the trace uh, pointing to the past. Why I actually notice all these things, I'll try to show a little video so that um, the viewers can also understand what this manipulation is all about. I hope you can see the video. Can you see it? Not yet. We can see your chart only. Okay, I just switched to the video. Really, you should be able to see the video sequence when I uh, play it. You could uh, swap the window. Click on the video window. Just a second, I'll see if I can uh, find how to do it. You can swap the windows at the top. Okay, so let me see. Maybe get out, get back out of the presentation mode. Yes, you should see it now. Yeah, this looks like a video. Okay, I'll just play it. And um, what we see here in this image J that you have these peaks that you saw at the bottom of the chart. You mark them individually by color and uh, just use that to illustrate that um, there are plot uh, pattern combinations which are identical and that's shown in the video here you can see that in the end that these uh, plot profiles are moved and uh, they fit identically And now this is the crucial point, you can see that they can be shifted and identically these uh, patterns match the different variants and you see it is completely identical. And this is something that uh, is a no-go in uh, four different batches with six different concentration levels so statistically it's 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 more than a freak out and now let me go back to the presentation okay I just have to share my screen again. 
Präsentation. Jetzt müssen wir wieder. Here we are. You should see my presentation now, the PowerPoint. Good. And uh, now we come to a point where I uh, was projected back into my past. All this blot gate is something I discovered by accident uh, on a Telegram post. And there was a very brief explanation only with a brief uh, summary of what that blot gate is. And then there was a picture of these Western blots with it. And that was what we see. And that reminded me of something. Uh, so that's 25 years ago. I wasn't on the right track yet. But uh, I remember that in the end of the 1990s, when I worked in the doping uh, field where I was uh, engaged, at the time I followed a trace as an investigative journalist in the University of Freiburg. That was the epicenter of uh, doping scandals with the team telecom and the cycling sports. And there was one side battlefield with only a handful of investigative journalists who looked into this, which is a massive medical scandal in gene therapy and oncology. Uh, leading to a massive shake in the research uh, um, community. They set up with a task force uh, and when they presented their report, uh, people were speechless of the manipulation and the fraud and uh, what was going on with the scientific studies. And I um, remembered that I did a dossier on that at the time. And in that dossier, I said, I remembered that I had seen fake Western blocks, blocks again, uh, 25 years ago. So I looked up that article and uh, took it out of my archive. And this is what I found here. That's the key. Um, mainstream uh, major newspaper article I wrote uh, on the left-hand side, you see the Western blots as they were 25 years ago. So just a brief on the difference here. The Western blot uh, we just saw before is a so-called immune with um, illuminated uh, chemo illuminated system. This is an autoradiogram. So radioactively marked proteins are measured with a similar pattern. And crucial is in that DFG task force report at the time, which was uh, very at its infantry Photoshop, actually these Western box plots were faked in exactly the same way. You see the duplicates here, which are framed. So here at the bottom, you see this double blot and reoccurs here, and this triplet occurs here twice or next to each other. This um, bigger one here is uh, put up there. 
and uh, the testers at the time uh, found this out and could publish it. There was a whistleblower who helped them and um, who um, published the internal communication on these fakes. And that was clear that we had a path leading back into the past. Uh, so that um, a carnival company in uh, Mainz uh, had the it's great that uh, they could remember the same thing, just as me, and um, took the same conclusions as they uh, did now and used the same trick again. Very impressive. And uh, looking at the parallels, reaching into the past, there was a surprise that I didn't note at the time. The whistleblower, I've heard that name before, uh, I didn't recall it. And when I looked back into my documentation of the time, I uh, looked up who was that whistleblower who worked in that uh, very renowned laboratory, who was the elite of the science at the time, Professor Hermann, Professor Brach, Metelsmann at the university clinics. They were the key figures. We thought they were the um, involved in the doping scandal. That gave no results. However, um, these renowned scientists, they were the spearhead of science in Germany at the time. Uh, a small laboratory worker um, was there to uh, publish it. And we, the researchers in my, uh, my generation, uh, were really admiring this person they were who was under massive pressure pressure at the time so they um, uh, talked to their um, uh, doctorate and um, he, he published it um, now the interesting thing is that this whistleblower of the time is professor Ebert Hilt today and he is the chair of the virology at the Paul Ehrlich Institute today. And uh, that makes He's the one who's responsible for the security of the COVID-19 vaccines in Germany. So my great hope is that if we come up with this proof, he has no other way uh, uh, rather than doing what he did at the time. and. I think um, he put it um, uh, that he would take a 360-degree circle, as our um, foreign secretary would put it, and he's still forcing the same direction, and he could be the one who could really uh, blow the game and pull the plug. It could operate the other way around, because he knows how to do this, and he is in a responsible um, position uh, for EMA. That's the Institut um, Pasteur and uh, Polyclinic Institute. They provide the data, uh, the laboratory data for the uh, approval of medication. EMA doesn't have its own laboratories. So he may very well know about this and he might just be on the other side of the force, as it were. And um, maybe there's pressure being exerted on him, I don't know, or whatever. Um, but it's uh, at least uh, 
He's a professor now. Um, every uh, scientist um, is called a professor. You don't need to have a habilitation. If you're a, um, a researcher at a um, state institute, you're, you can call yourself professor. So I'd be careful. We really need to talk to this gentleman. Interesting to see, will he be willing to do that? Yes. Well, that's my hope. That he's able to prove things we really have to say at the time i can only uh, underpin his courage 25 years ago and i can't imagine that somebody who is conditioned that way um, has no consciousness at all and acts differently in a similar situation today at least that's my hope of course there were lots of disillusions in the last uh, three years by many people but we may be lucky well one needs to talk to him um, he knows what it's all about that's obvious Absolutely. so he has to he has to say something about this now Quite right. Uh, my first thought uh, is, of course, I don't want to uh, say anything in dubio pro res. Um, uh, I have to say that if he was aware of this, uh, he will probably know, or they will know what to put the salt in their soup. And of course, they could have tried to buy him in the meantime. Uh, I think it is um, at least a bit confusing that the person who discovered this at the time, which was very um, coining for the career development, that uh, this person doesn't say anything. Probably this person would have had the first thought uh, to analyze these plots in the context of this Pfizer issue, and that nobody talks about this, especially in the function that this person has now in the Orlesley Institute, that is quite suspicious. However, as Wolfgang said, um, one should listen to the person and uh, see. Well, the Spiegel magazine would have been with the Polytechnic Institute a long time ago, years back, but... Well, leaves us with work anyway. Well, um, again, regarding these old plots, that is basically the proof um, uh, of certain cancer markers or protein, a proof of protein. So what was that about establishing a test that could be sold um, that was uh, not measuring the right thing? Or don't we know what this is all about? No, the, the process is very valid. There's no doubt about this. And the biochemics and the protein analytics um, have had, uh, are in practice for half a century. It's established, well established. What they did at the time is just they um, did the things that they wanted to them to deliver the results that they needed to, similar as we've had it today. And uh, so the process as such is not faulty, it is the manipulation and the photoshopping. In what context were these plots shown in this article? Was it to prove that the different batches all have the same composition or what was the, what was the use uh, for this? What was the line of reasoning here? Well, the requirement of EMA and FDA was to prove the product verification 
That means the uh, substances in the product from large-scale production. That was the requirement. And so it's quite here. If you can document it by Western Bloc through the respective batches, that's what you do and uh, present the uh, analyses of the protocols. And as um, the uh, kettles did not produce what they wanted to produce is one thing, or that there is something completely else put into them than said, um, that may be the other solution. And uh, then they tried to document on paper what they wanted to document. And there's no other explanation that comes to my mind on why they should manipulate this uh, some uh, other than something being just being covered up. You probably know the um, research that has uh, shown what has been found in um, uh, in the jabs that DNA has been found there, plasmids incredibly many different uh, fractions um, if i remember right i would have to look it up um, in 30 percent of um, the um, ingredients and that there was a wide variety because uh, different working groups tried they got a number of those jabs and analyzed them and they found that they contain all sorts of uh, substances that weren't described that shouldn't be inside there. There are uh, some explanations uh, accusing the manufacturing processes that there were be, that be um, impurities. The plasmides are used to uh, make the uh, RNA and uh, then there's the DNA in there and all of it goes into the nanoparticles and it goes into the cell. Nobody knows what happens there then. So these are very um, um, discomforting uh, facts. And the fact that the um, damages uh, caused by these jabs are so uh, uh, at, at such wide variance uh, also uh, point to the fact that these jabs um, contain a wide variety of substances that shouldn't be in there. And the quality is uh, monitored by the companies themselves, according to Paul Ehrlich Institute. And that is something that really should immediately mean that nobody gets these jabs anymore. They don't know what they're getting. Quite rightly, it even goes as far that in the protocols and the documentation that are used for the product verification, you can see that different analyses were used. Uh, one is the HPTL uh, QMS, uh, that's a liquid chromatographics uh, mass spectrum analysis, and that shows that it's not the pure spike protein as it would be expected in the um, analytics, but also impurifications, which are documented. That is incredible. <clears throat> that's what we had in the Humpgate. Uh, Keyword. So after Bloodgate, that's the next gate. Uh, Bloodgate was the first. Humpgate uh, is the second, and the plus medium would be the third. So there's tons of gates to go through. It's not only Bill Gates uh, to go through it. And uh, so 
it's madness that we're seeing here and these impurities by themselves were documented in the uh, approval documents and it's very uh, it's completely strange to me how the authorities could have uh, authorized this clearly and documented impurities and uh, by the billions inject that into people that is completely irresponsible i have a technical question because we've gotten the first questions from the audience could it be a, a digital uh, image uh, compression uh, phenomenon uh, through Photoshop or something, because the documentation, the way it was handed in, could it be that once they are printed out or if they're um, delivered as a scan that is printed out, then again, that might be different from um, getting the original file with the compression. Could there be some um, type of uh, misinterpretation due to a, um, an artifact uh, sort of a uh, phenomenon? Yeah, that was the first um, assumption that uh, was footed as a counter-argument and um, Ms. Alaya uh, looked at uh, the original, uh, at these data and uh, the claim could be made that, okay, it is actually from some documents where uh, the, um, uh, the print and the graphical uh, processing plays a role, but that could not be confirmed. Uh, you can actually see on the original files, which are available after all, uh, that these patterns can be seen even um, in the printout. And even if you uh, pass this on with a, a poor um, resolution, you could still see this a pixel distribution, this uneven pixel distribution, of course, even if you um, copy it, of course, you will have it a bit fuzzier, but you would have the repetitive patterns and you could verify those. What's interesting is that Pfizer um, were actually bold enough, we have to say, to publish these um, Western blots in a scientific uh, publication in uh, Science in um, January 2020, uh, um, uh, 22, sorry, um, relatively late. And you can see the same repetitions and these um, abnormalities that uh, shouldn't be there. And so there are different documents um, that allow you to trace this back so that the uh, probability that this is due to uh, print quality or uh, image processing uh, issues that this can actually be uh, excluded so um, all the colleagues uh, agree so uh, it's not like 99 percent of uh, scientists need to say uh, that this is convincing but within your group there is no diverging opinion where people say no it could have uh, such and such a um, reason well the reaction has been pretty uh, uniform at least from uh, scientists of my generation I'm of a bit of advanced age uh, were differently conditioned of course but anyone who saw this really cracked down laughing um, saying like what's this all about as the Americans said that's a cartoon it's uh, completely obscure 
and um, is completely bereft of any um, sense of reality. So everybody said, okay, there are more modern uh, methods, digitization has progressed, uh, image processing has progressed, and maybe the robots, the uh, automatons that do this um, represent the analysis protocol in a different way, okay, uh, very well. But then it also at least has to match the manual plot. And as we've seen, that is not the case at all. There's no match between these two. So that's an indication as well that there was manipulation here as well, because at least in the automated form, you have to find what uh, you find in the manual uh, Western blot, at least in terms of the distribution of the bands. And that's not the case. May I ask another question? So. Uh, uh, to me personally, um, uh, this is the first time I heard of Western blots, um, but I'm a, a layperson in terms of science, of course. But uh, it seems like this is uh, something that has been around for a while. So what would have been uh, the consequence if Pfizer had not done anything? Now, what would have been the uh, further um, um, course of things? Would it have become... Um, publicly known. The question is, why do they invest energy into covering this up? Um, if it is actually um, published in a scientific journal, doesn't that make people aware of this? So the question really, was it necessary from Pfizer's point of view to manipulate this? Or can, can you come up with a different uh, explanation for this? Well, it is definitely um, a case where um, the results were delivered uh, that the uh, auditors wanted to hear. And basically, um, it seems that um, they um, simply delivered what um, the auditors wanted to see, so there's no further questions. Well, yes, if you assume that the vials um, really had different content, you could see that on the pictures that it's not the same thing if you know what you're looking at. And uh, of course, that would have failed. It had to have the same, other they, they, they couldn't have proved the quality. So each injection has to have the same material inside. And if you can visually see the differences, then anybody who looks at this, now uh, you look at the pictures, you could say that something is wrong. That's not the same content. And uh, this uh, photo techniques uh, can make it look alike. So that's very important that the pictures uh, at least suggest that the quality is good in production and uh, that it always uh, contains the same stuff. So it would have been a, um, a knockout criterion for approval if it hadn't been shown the way they did. Well, a normal authority would have said, what do you want to sell us? It has a different content each time. That's the way it is. It's about the pharmaceutical quality that needs to be shown. This is the quintessence of the entire uh, process. And it is a matter of course that this should be the precondition uh, for uh, a medication to be uh, produced with the appropriate quality and purity, and that's what these processes are designed for, to guarantee this, and that this was not delivered or manipulated um, to show that it was delivered is really unbelievable, really. 
It's um, like the diesel scandal, really. Same thing, same thing. Uh, so they pretend to be measuring things and that that's manipulated to get the approval. Although this is much, much more scandalous um, that because it harms people directly and they are being harmed all the time. What we have here is a scandal which is a thousand times uh, that of the diesel scandal. And if no prosecution follows this and confiscates the documentation and Pulse Ehrlich Institutes and interviews somebody who knows about this technology, then we are not in a uh, the court of law here anymore. And uh, the rule of law is such a severe suspicion that you um, say here is something that has to be followed up on. Well, the um, threshold is very low here. It's very easy to meet the requirements here, but nothing happens. So as far as we know, well, it has only just now uh, emerged, uh, so to say. Well, yeah, we hope that the public prosecutor uh, gets gets into action. For, for but I, you. you wanted to say something more? Yeah, it's about human lives. Uh, don't forget this. It's really uh, a the dimension of a uh, a crime against humanity at a scale unheard of. And if we uh, look at look back at this manipulation 25 years ago, back then it was only about scientific manipulation uh, um, for publications, etc. And the entire uh, control um, bodies and supervisory bodies uh, were up in arms, and uh, they actually harassed uh, those who pursued those who manipulated things here and today it has a different dimension it's about human life uh, so we have to or the, the authorities need to um, investigate this with a vengeance uh, well somebody has to send this to the prosecution there's no way around this we cannot assume uh, that they um, listen to us here now Exactly, and I'm very grateful to Dr. Eichner, who has published a lot of things on YouTube, and that's why I um, uh, indicated the link to his blog as well here, um, because that is uh, an attempt to explain it to lay people so that they can understand this. There's a lot of sources indicated where you can uh, cross-reference, uh, so you can get um, the hang of this. and. Um, Dr. Eichner has already contacted uh, uh, Professor Hild, for instance, or um, then what you just mentioned. Clearly, um, these are um, this is evidence that can be used by public prosecutors. So some things need to be uh, started now, um, but uh, we kick-started this with our initial publication now and we hope that this now leads to the appropriate consequences being drawn by the appropriate authorities. Is, are you done with your presentation? Yep, that's it, yep. Just I can uh, point uh, to this article again. 
which is from Alchner Klartext uh, from this platform where you can uh, read up on this. I know it's very difficult to understand about laboratory diagnostics, etc. It's not easy to understand, but I hope that we were able to show at least what it's all about and where the uh, manipulation becomes obvious and what it means. Well, you put it quite nicely with a white vest. Pfizer doesn't have a white vest. Um, they have been punished uh, a great number of times. Uh, they had to pay lots of uh, fees and punish impunities uh, uh, in the US. I think that is a big part of the turnover that uh, went into that. And if you read their reports, they are quite familiar with this kind of thing. Wolfgang, are you still talking because you just... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm speechless, really, of what I heard. If this turns out to be true, that it was uh, fraudulently made this way, that there was just uh, the photoshopping that it looks like on the paper as all the things were the same. It's a, it's a hoax of fraud um, that is similar, like uh, falsifying the diesel values. And only the people are concerned, concerned in their health are much, much further. People died because of this. There's a lot of criminal energy involved, uh, even though I'm not sure, um, uh, has anyone been prosecuted um, in Germany no, for the Dieselgate? No idea. I'm not aware. There is, there is an interesting uh, precedence uh, from the point where I come from with uh, medical products, you may remember that. Um, the breast implantates, implants, um, at the time that was a huge scandal that uh, low quality industrial silicone was used and uh, um, only by the invoicing it was found out that at least in the samples they didn't find anything because they presented what the auditors had to see and uh, then one could see the criminal energy in this kind of area and amongst others this leads to led to the revision of the medical products law uh, the uh, compliance uh, guidelines were readjusted and the national laws in germany were made much more more stricter so at least here one should see the same level and um, the legal basis there is, uh, the, all the laws have the respective paragraphs in that uh, the institutions are there but if they don't take action well uh, probably you'll have to take the cat uh, to chase the mice and uh, uh, I hope this is of help. Then there's this other scandal, the uh, pharmacy scandal. I think it was in Bottrop where the whistleblowers um, uh, indicated that uh, cancer medication was uh, laced and um, was sold at a high price. And if this is uh, verified, a physician can't verify what he's uh, injecting into patients much less the patients themselves. It has to be uh, something that the authorities have to ensure. We have to um, be able to rely on that. Uh, but if this sort of thing can happen, then you can't rely on anything or no uh, medication anymore. This has incredible implications for the trust people have in um, uh, the, the uh, medical products. We can see the 
um, cardboard box. We can see the medication itself, but we don't know what's inside. If the authorities allow this to happen, then we have to expect that this is something that slips through um, elsewhere as well. And this is unbearable. These institutions are so corrupt, obviously, that um, um, alarm uh, alarms aren't raised. I, I find it terrible. Like if you go to a pharmacy, um, you really um, have your hair stand on end. Knowing this, uh, if I think that, um, if I consider that you can't trust the medication anymore because you can't trust the authorities that approve them, then this is a disaster. Then it's probably better uh, you take uh, global, uh, globules and that, that won't hurt. Oh, probably this is why uh, this should be prohibited now. Uh, there is a chance of this. I have another question from the audience saying that a, it is a Biontech protein with the, that we see with these markers is a pure statement. We don't know what it is and uh, it could be anything. Exactly. Also that uh, in this uh, trespass level between 141 or what you said, going up to 190, that's just uh, stated there's no proof for that. Exactly. It would have been uh, the responsibility of Pfizer's uh, to take um, random samples uh, from production and then uh, to perform tests on them. Um, in order to ensure that the uh, active ingredient is in the medication in the appropriate uh, with the appropriate uh, purity, and um, these tests obviously never were performed. Just imagine, I couldn't believe it myself. For these uh, COVID-19 uh, medication, the um, medication. Um, legislation has been hollowed out by an appropriate regulation. Um, if you take a look at this, it's about um, the uh, taking of random samples from batches. And the most important quality requirements that really need to be um, met have been eliminated, basically. They have been undermined. It was really a, a carte blanche that was unbelievable. Quick and dirty was the attempt. Yeah, that's something that became obvious in the um, uh, data uh, analysis. They didn't uh, really take a look at, uh, they didn't analyze, they uh, shook it a bit, looked at the color, that's yeah. it. Quite, quite right. Uh, all quality requirements that were standard in the past decades have been kicked out of the door. So the Western blot is performed in many laboratories. That's a routine method. It's not hard to, to make. So in other words, would it be possible um, uh, uh, pharmacists have this um, uh, their own um, way of analyzing uh, what's in um, uh, the uh, medication, but is there a uh, um, simple way of performing a um, Western blot? So if a clinic buys a thousand jabs, say, um, because they want to um, inject all their staff, can they, could they took samples and could they um, perform these um, analyses and could they show um, that, um, uh, well, could they make a Western blot? 
Yes, uh, I could say the basic technology, the hardware is not too, not too expensive. That was the genius in that technology. It is uh, low cost. It's not like a gas chromatography where you pay massive amounts of uh, money to get the uh, hardware in it. These Western blocks are very simple systems uh, which you just put some power in, electrodes and gel carriers, and that's not much. Electrophoresis. Um, it's a very, very simple process, and it's inexpensive. It's not big investment that you need. You could uh, get this easily. And uh, the uh, substances are standard substances available in any laboratory. I have two more questions referring to your contribution that I read um, and I benefited a lot of it. It's um, very hard to read but it's well written I have to say so this is really a compliment because I um, had no knowledge about this at all. Uh, two things first of all the institutions, uh, the institutes were mentioned here. Wolf, Wolf uh, Gangwodak has mentioned uh, X quick um, several times over and uh, this has been um, excluded um, even though it is supposed to be an institution that's involved. You had mentioned the ICWIC um, and uh, you uh, said that, it, that they failed. That's my question. Uh, did you find uh, that ICWIC was consulted here in this context and then um, screwed up or um, didn't they know about this? Um, is it possible they weren't involved at all? Well, in the context of the approval process, the documentation is uh, sent to EMR, FTA, HMR, and uh, the auditors look at it. So that was not a requirement uh, to send this to the ICWIC. As far as ICWIC uh, has a right to take a veto is something that I don't know about. And uh, whether they want to is another question at all. Well, Liquid um, usually gets involved when it's about um, weighing up uh, benefit and um, risks or damage. And it's usually involved when um, the question arises of whether um, some uh, whether something needs to be financed from the uh, public health insurance companies so the ministry can um, um, commission them. Uh, they could ask, for instance, Equic, what's the benefit damage ratio? But most work comes from the uh, Joint Federal Committee uh, and the um, health insurance companies pay for the uh, jabs. Um, but uh, the government decided uh, to buy these uh, jabs and to distribute it to people uh, through the army, so ICWIC had nothing to do with it. If they'd uh, got their hands on it, they would have taken a look at it, of course, and they uh, would have asked what's the benefit, what's the damage, and uh, are there any studies in this context, and they would have uh, might have noticed that the endpoints didn't match in the studies, that only the PCR tests were considered as a positive case if there were only uh, some symptoms 
visible and they could have looked at what side effects are there and did everybody who was involved in the study um, uh, did they um, stay with the study to the end of the study or were they taken out um, prior to the end of the study so a lot of things happened that uh, weren't uh, going the way they should have gone and if they'd uh, taken if, if Iquik had, had had a chance to look at everything whether everything went right um, they um, uh, might have called this, uh, the plug on it but they weren't all involved that was exactly my question is that the of course that's the task of the Iquik but uh, and uh, Robert Cochran should uh, have their work to do which they didn't apparently uh, Iquik could have just taken the same path here they were consulted and didn't do their job but that doesn't seem to be the case no no okay good and the second question I asked uh, Mr. Van Loon this question in a different way so I'll ask again uh, hopefully you can answer it positively uh, you said in your conclusion that the finding is that the people who got the jabs reacted very differently to be polite and the conclusion was that there must have been different uh, contents in the different batches and sometimes even just selling solution could have been in them so maybe my question to everyone I think it's very interesting for everyone I know people who um, don't uh, who say uh, who regret that they took the shot now is there any way to find this out um, by any physical physiological tests um, blood samples or whatever is there any way to find out whether you got the original or something similar or your simple saline solution well, at least uh, there's the possibility of uh, taking some samples and um, dyeing um, tissues uh, like Mr. Burkhardt standardized it in order to um, uh, give proof. That's one variant. A uh, actual analysis of causes of uh, what um, was included in the batches that were um, jabbed that um, that is something that the authorities should have done day one and it's not possible to reconstruct that anymore now so it's impossible to um, do this retroactively now concerning clinical diagnostics the only thing that I can see is these um, histological samples under laboratory parameters but if you don't have any symptoms and I know a lot of people who had uh, multiple injections who didn't even have a local reaction where you'd say well, that's really unusual to put it this way then it's pretty obvious that we have to make a distinction between serum and uh, placebo with different qualities that's the only way to explain this um, also uh, between the different uh, substances as well absolutely yes Another question from the audience, uh, Mr. Lauterbach's uh, role, he uh, comes out with all the uh, most interesting statements now that he sees problems with uh, uh, vaccinations and he seems to be in a confessing mood, uh, confessional mood, um, um, 
So you kind of wonder uh, why is this happening? Is that a trend that we can see? Um, are they um, jumping on the bandwagon now? Uh, and Mr. Lauterbach suddenly uh, is being uh, sunk as a, a pawn in this um, or thrown in front of this bandwagon? Or uh, can we say that the National Regional Health Minister is um, subject to the influence of uh, incompetent experts, they were all wrong, and now WHO has to intervene with its uh, wider competence? Could that be a line of reasoning that you could imagine? Or what is the role of uh, Mr. Lauterbach there in this context? Um, why does the health minister do that in Germany now? Um, it's hard to imagine that he does it on his own accord. Well, assuming that all of this was scripted right from the beginning, of course, in crisis management, they thought about the options on how to exit. And they noted now that we have a historical revision, uh, putting relations, relativeness, uh, talking about uh, forgiveness and so on, trying to sweep things under the rug. But that's not the way to look at things that happened in the past. That's not what you're doing and what many critical researchers are doing or alternative uh, journalists are doing that we the facts are put on the table and that these are uh, legally uh, analyzed and um, Lauterbach of course he's a, a political actor and uh, he is a puppet on strings installed you can't say that any different way and uh, that he's uh, thrown under the bus now you, we see that with Fauci as well in the U.S., uh, Lula, the RKI, lots of critical figures are, um, are disappearing from the scene all of a sudden. And uh, he's gone uh, well, anyway. Spahn has gone, the former health minister. He filled the bathtub with this gunk. He was the first responsible when the whole thing started. Quite right. Quite right. And Lauterbach then jumped on the bath, uh, or got into the bathtub then. But they're not really um, uh, people who understand everything. They just go along and say, yes, let's do this. You can see the strings on those puppets. I wouldn't um, bet too much on them. I'm much more interested in people who are behind it all. Um, even the people at Biontech are puppets. They get a lot of money for this and they go along, they deliver their junk. Or why is the head of Polish Institute, why is he protected like that? Why is the Chancellor protecting him? As a government, I'd immediately say, what's happening there? Come over here. Now, what did I hear here? That's something you can't do. It goes so far. If the uh, Chancellor um, uses the explosion in the pipeline um, to support uh, the policies that we have to suffer in Germany now, then they, we can imagine that these people will um, impose even more on their population. This government is unbearable. It's unbearable. We don't have a presidential system. We don't have a, a president directly elected by par by uh, the people. Parliament um, elects the president. 
And yesterday I saw an excerpt from the Assemblée Nationale uh, when they wanted to oppose the um, uh, the uh, extension of the retirement age that was imposed against Parliament by the President. The entire Parliament got up, held up um, posters uh, uh, protesting. They sung, um, uh, sang the um, uh, national hymn. Um, did you see that on t TV? It was shown there. Um, it was so impressive. It was such an event. You have to take a look at that. And I imagine that the German Parliament says, stop this nonsense, and they get up together and they just walk home. They can do that. They don't even put up posters. Uh, one of them can simply ask for a, a vote of uh, no confidence, and then they take a vote and then he's gone. It's as easy as that. And everything else can change. It's unbelievable. Well, there is a parallel to the UK, the former health minister Hancock. If we look at the lockdown files, which have been published now, that's the same same story. It is an evidence that uh, clearly documents that they that he knew about it. Everybody knew what was going on, and. Uh, they uh, did uh, contrary to better knowledge, and uh, at least uh, in Great Britain, this has been uh, addressed publicly, uh, but in the German mainstream media, I haven't heard anything about that, uh, only just um, falsifying that even, and uh, the media could have picked up on that, but they didn't. Well, it's part of the truth as well. Yeah, it's the, it's the media. Well, I don't want to say anything about that. Well, it all um, relies on the media, of course. But I wanted to add that, first of all, the pressure in France on the street was a bit uh, bigger. Um, and uh, this is, of course, something uh, that might actually influence individual MPs. Um, uh, so that the MPs want to support the people, which should actually be their task, maybe, to some extent. Isn't that their job in the first place? Yeah, there's that, yeah. But at the end of the day, um, they st uh, they still have hold offices, and uh, they want to uh, keep office. And um, if they don't, they'll get a different office. So um, the fundamental problem is not solved by this. Even if uh, there's a bit of a shake-up, um, then um, people can let off some steam and people will be happier because they think this is right. Um, but the structures themselves, this uh, puppet theater that we have, will continue to exist. So um, uh, this kind of uh, activity doesn't really change anything. Um, some weeks ago we talked about um, the uh, situation in Tunisia where they had the uh, voter turnout of 5%. I don't know what the situation is now, whether they had re-elections, but I read recently in Lebanon uh, they don't even have a, a parliament or haven't had a, a government for a while. They just keep going. I don't know how uh, um, this situation developed, whether a parliament dissolved itself and uh, a new one never constituted, but the administration keeps um, operating and people do their own thing, but things just uh, work independently. That's um, kind of an indication. Maybe you can't compare Lebanon with Central European 
countries, but maybe you can to a certain extent because um, Lebanon also has people who want to live um, independently. So uh, maybe uh, we, we could wonder whether we need this um, um, superstructure. Um, um, so maybe we can sever the ties between the uh, puppets and the puppeteers. And um, Wolfgang said it in one of the last uh, sessions, if you need to control only individuals, then it's much easier than um, controlling millions. And I think that's the only way out. Well, I wrote that in my article in Rubicon, uh, talking about institutional corruption. And I elaborated on that in great detail, that this is an awareness which is nicely spelt out in our constitution, which you can read up there, that all power is with the people, and we live in democracy, at least nominally, that we could change things if the population wanted to. And I think that we have quite some confusion about that, and this has to do with the size. If it is all transferred to Europe, all decisions are brought to Europe, nobody will understand that the German local politicians don't know anything about European politics. When I was there, I had great problems in following this, and I saw others have um, even didn't even try. But even as a federal parliamentarian, as an MP, there is the European reporters for individual areas. Social, they don't have social area for economy. And I had that uh, report for health. It's massive heaps of paper which uh, the MPs get. Uh, they have to look at it and they can uh, say something about it and um, tell the government on what to do. They can uh, apply if they do not agree or do agree. But they're completely overwhelmed, much too much. And there are things that happen to be, don't have to be centrally coordinated. And if you just look at the food hygiene, uh, cold hygiene and health, which is simply centralized and it's unclear, they're given to the big multi corporations. Uh, I, I get dizzy in that. It's not necessary. It's not necessary. Uh, there are lots of things that happen centralized, not because it makes sense and it's better in Europe in that way, but they are centralized in order to um, get, create monopolist structures, and for them it is easier to follow their interests. And that's what is going on everywhere. It's going in the technical standards, it's happening in the pharmacological um, area, we see scintillation everywhere, and if you work with corruption and you have your um, private interests brought into the governmental uh, constitutions and uh, take your effect in your private way, it's much better to have a central place to go to. So you don't have to go to so many different politicians. There's one place who tells everybody what to do, and I could get the right people in that position. That's what we are being through, and that's institutional corruption to a massive extent in many areas of our life, and we have to suffer from it. Well, it's the big lie of parliamentarism. Um, 
claiming that the people who are sitting in parliament actually know about what they're uh, deciding about. Um, as you said, I've seen it before. Uh, I've seen it at the local level, and I don't think that it's much better at the federal level that the people who are on the uh, special committees uh, don't have any special knowledge about it. There's one person there giving a lecture, and then everybody says, okay, oh, interesting. And then there's someone from the opposition who asks a few critical questions, and then things are just way through. And that's at the uh, committee level. Um, never mind what happens in Parliament, where you really have to um, um, vote along with your um, party discipline. Um, and the uh, Constitution says that um, all the power emanates from the people, and the people uh, exerts um, it, this power in elections. And that's the funny thing, uh, I think, uh, from what I know. Uh, that those who uh, the, uh, wrote the Constitution uh, focused on the uh, first part, um, the representative um, part, because they didn't trust the people. And that is the justification of why we have representative democracy. But if we imagine that most representatives MPs don't know themselves what they're talking about, and then we have the corruptibility as well, then the whole thing is, of course, uh, very shaky. And that is another argument for me to to uh, say that uh, parliamentarism isn't working. Well, that's maybe a bit too much. I wouldn't uh, um, spill the bath with a child. Uh, this uh, subsidiarity is something that everybody has to be aware of. That means things that we can do locally should be done locally. It's our things. Nobody has to get involved in that. And only if we are overwhelmed, if a municipality can't do it, somebody from the uh, state may help and so on. And um, so who just th thought, think about care homes. If I am in a little town and I'm in the local parliament, I know I can walk around, I can look at the care homes and I can see what's going on and I can see the people aren't doing well and I can take care of it and I'm responsible for it. And if I have the money and responsibility, I can change things. So that means I am um, accountable and I have to think on how to do things better. Now what we have, um, the local politicians have got SGB 11, uh, so that's the social uh, laws, which you don't understand, where it's about cost uh, responsibilities of the authorities and uh, the health insurances. So there's tons of overhead and all the <coughs> surveillance and overlooking and quality assurance. Uh, just because things are too big and you can't do that with certifications and audit. It's companies that you can bribe as well. It's absurd. <coughs> And uh, subsidiarity would mean we give the budget to the municipality, and if they don't do it as good as the neighboring municipality, the citizens will look for someone else to do it. It's so simple. And then there are other things which could be done on the municipal level as well. Um, education, 
if it's normal school education, security, for example, lots of things can be done in the local level if they get the money for it. Energy supply, there's lots of things that one, if it's big uh, industrial companies, then one may have to get a larger area to provide them with energy. But uh, the domestic use, there's the sun everywhere and you can see um, you can share things. Uh, there's lots of different models um, that uh, can be used in that way, but we don't look out for that. We just see centralization, monopolization. Now the globalists come and say, we do everything. Well, I agree. Um, I believe that we should start at the lowest level possible, uh, even at the factual, uh, well, because you're closer to the facts, actually. But it doesn't change the fact that no matter at what level you are, um, maybe it's not representative for everybody, at the lower levels you might lack the competence in these committees. Um, they're all parliaments, even though they're called something else, uh, but they're all parliaments and they, um, they have the same procedures with committees. And um, it's not the people who have the greatest expertise who actually uh, take the decisions. And the other point uh, uh, concerning this principle of subsidiarity, I agree. Um, that's one of the uh, fundamental principles in the European uh, con uh, uh, treaties uh, for the European Union. Uh, it's always underscored, but they're um, increasingly uh, undermined. For instance, the subsidiarity principle, that's what you mentioned, that everything that can be done at the lower level, at least as effectively as at the next highest level, needs to be done at the lower level. And the counter-argument, or uh, they say that the subsidiarity principle won't uh, be effective if we need a uniform rule. And you can always find a reason why we need something uniform at a higher level. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's all washed out. It's even worse. It even says subsidiarity is instead if the European Union can't do it better. And of course, they can always say that they do, but they never have to prove it. They just take it over, and of course, the national state would be right to say, we don't agree. You can't do it better than we can. So there could be a fight between the EU and the national state. But the national states have to make sure that this works out. And when I was in the federal parliament, it was always the Scandinavians who um, in, in, insisted that Europe take their fingers off the social system and the health uh, uh, health system. So they tried to install um, uniform service regulations, and there was resistance against this. So we organized each other ourselves and uh, said this is not the way to do it. And this discussion is old, but the EU always, again and again, tries to centralize everything and get things in their power by the economic rights, uh, quality, customer security. That's why they want to pull up these things on their own side of the bed. But we see what's the outcome here. That's a very unilateral side. And uh, I'm so happy that the farmers in Lewis Saxony have won now um, in, the, in, in Holland. The uh, Farmers' Party who fight against this, who fight against their land being taken away, and I think it's very encouraging. 
and uh, we don't hear about this in our news that there is resistance in other areas and a resistance that's uh, uh, successful. Everybody should look at these uh, pictures. Did I say Lois? Well, it sounded like. Well, I was wrong then. I was Holland. Well, the, um, the essential thing is access to information. No matter what system we think about, what we say, subsidiarity here, and um, um, not everything that you can do locally uh, is obvious. Um, it's, uh, and there's not necessarily only one uh, possibility of solving uh, problems. Uh, access to reasonable information must be granted so that it can't be cut off by uh, from the top by certain lobbies or um, the mayor has uh, some nepotism going on so that people can't even access the information. That needs to be ensured. Things need to be transparent. All these processes need to be transparent and then people just need to be interested in participating and that's uh, decisive. You need to organize locally and if you have decision-making power as well then there's more interest as well but nevertheless you need to take action and that is the interesting thing if you actually can move things locally but you need to do it if you leave it to others all the time then um, it, uh, if you delegate it to whatever structure it won't work. I always think as far as the financial sector is uh, concerned in all areas the study is showing that there is countries with many small banks are much more productive and uh, GDP the the GDP is, is much better than in countries where they have uh, monopolizing banks and uh, we're just seeing this now in the US that the small banks are systematically ruined and uh, the people are thrown into fear saying oh small banks that could be bankrupt you have to take the money away that's a trick that puts people in fear and that uh, helps people ruin the bank. That's a simple trick that the banks are centralized by. And uh, if we see and why Germany is so much more productive than many other countries, it's the many small people with the ideas, with their uh, with the uh, small banks, they know, I know this good what they do, we give them the money, that's a very stable and high quality and irreplaceable corporation locally with people that help each other. That's what these small um, banks are there for. Uh, and they were a role a model for that, the cooperative banks and so on. And I was scared when I saw that these people feel like bankers um, using the financial business and so on, um, who do not lead to any productivity, that just push money around. And uh, I think that this closeness um, supplying people with money should be something that is decentralized as well. If I heard it right yesterday, I was at an event where they even said that China uh, made sure that there's many small banks because he knows exactly this. He know and wants to use that to increase productivity in his country. 
So we could learn so much from each other if we could discuss things openly and uh, didn't have the media that uh, suppress every different opinion and that apparently depend on the big players who um, want to restrict our own responsibility for things, uh, who want to say that we are going to be poor and happy and uh, make us dull and dutiful and we get our pills and we'll be happy. It's sad. Well, Wolfgang, there's this one uh, picture that I um, uh, put into the book where the two hands open up and uh, there's a blue pill on one side and a red one on the other side. And if you click on the, uh, if you take the blue one, it's uh, uh, corona-ausschuss.de, that the normal um, uh, website and the other one, the red pill, will take you to Corona-Ausschuss um, without missing an S. So it's a different link. It looks the same and it takes you to a uh, vaccine uh, promoting um, website. So I'm um, actually um, um, trained in a bank. I was with a um, community bank. Um, and I actually looked at these uh, cooperative um, aspects. It's a, a big one, of course, Volksbank, the one that I worked for. Uh, but we have to make sure that we connect in these small structures and um, that we use banks that are uh, protected uh, against um, the uh, uh, sharks, the big uh, capitalist sharks, and also uh, protect us those are banks that we might fight for um, if they affect us on site locally. There is no democracy without subsidiarity. There's no democracy if we don't know what's going on. If it's too big, too complex, how can we decide as a people? It's not possible. We can only decide where we are. And this is why it is one thing and it is interconnected. And transparency. Yeah, and that leads to transparency, and that has to be our thing. We have to identify with it. We have to fight for it. And uh, we could uh, look over to the others, jealously, who do things better, and we could uh, join up with the neighbors and uh, create associations, but we will be responsible for whom we team up with. Not everybody has to do things on their own. Uh, we could get things together and do things together, but responsibility has to remain with everyone. Well, Mr. Quartz, we actually moved away from your really interesting topic, but it was driven by our outrage about um, the failure of these uh, supervisory bodies that uh, should have acted differently. So I'm really curious to see um, when Mr. Uh, Professor Litz is his name, uh, when he's confronted uh, with this uh, story, maybe um, reminding him of um, the past, uh, whether it's a deja vu for him, and that'll be uh, really interesting. Uh, so I was, I, I thought it was great that you should have given this presentation here today. I think it was very important, and we should stay in contact. Maybe uh, different people have um, are interested now in uh, contacting Mr. Hilch and um, asking probably him about he's this. away on business. Probably he's not there. Yeah, probably traveling together with Mr. Lauterbach. Anyway.
Thank you very much. Yes. It was very interesting and great um, that this has been um, exposed now and fascinating that uh, this was something that you found um, on the basis of your experience as an investigative journalist because that was um, enabled you to confirm that there were such uh, manipulations in the past as well. Um, that were done in a quite bold way at the time, so it's quite fascinating. Well, I have to thank you, and uh, I uh, think from the blog you're going to basic democracy. Congratulations and my respect to the work that you've done over the past two years. Fantastic work, and I hope that you can carry on the way you are. Absolutely, we'll keep it up. We'll need we'll need donations. That's important. Uh, people, we have to hire. We have to lay off people because we have no not enough not enough money. We don't have enough money. So we need people. We need money. Give us donations. Okay. Right. Thank you very much. Now we have the next guest. That's uh, Professor Fritz Farnholt, and I'm very happy to have you with us. I hope you are. I'm happy to see you. Yes, hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you, but we can't see you yet. I can see you, Mr. Farnholt. Okay, thank you. Hello. Great to have you with us. You are experienced in politics, uh, quite extendedly so, and you are a natural scientist. Maybe you could just briefly introduce yourself. I think you best know of uh, your own history and uh, what's interesting in your CV and your credentials concerning the current situation. Well, I'm... I spent half a lifetime in uh, administration and politics. I was a senator, a uh, year minister in Hamburg, and then I went um, to industry, where I um, dealt with renewable energies, solar energy, um, wind energy. Uh, but I found that politicians over the last 10 years attempted to use these two uh, forms of energy generation, the only source of energy in Germany. And I've uh, looked at uh, questions uh, to do with the climate, and I've issued a, a book now called The Great Energy Crisis, which I would like to recommend to all of you, The Great Energy Crisis and how we can overcome it where I criticize the um, path that the federal government has taken, which is characterized by a fear, um, a fearful energy policy. There are some uh, parallels to the corona policies. If you try, well, let me, uh, move into the light a bit better. Is it better this way? If you try 
die liebgewonnenen Gewohnheiten abzugewöhnen, wenn man to um, change people's beloved habits. If you want to convince them of uh, things um, that are run counter to their interests, then the easiest way to achieve this is by fear. It happened with uh, the climate uh, change. No day passes where we're not being um, told that if you do this, if you drive a car, then the world will uh, uh, be destroyed. If you use uh, a gas firing in your home, then you'll destroy the world. And this is how, in Germany, an energy policy is pursued um, that is, runs counter to the interests of uh, people, which will cost a lot of wealth. We will lose millions of jobs. It uh, started in uh, 2011 uh, when we started phasing out nuclear power. Now we're uh, phasing out uh, coal-fired power plants, and now uh, our Minister of the Economy wants to um, stop us from replacing our gas-fired um, heating systems, and the same goes for the car industry. After 2030, no uh, piston engine is supposed to be um, licensed for road use anymore. If you had told people that 15 years ago that uh, politicians could do that sort of thing in Germany um, at some stage, basically switching off your heating system and uh, telling you uh, uh, telling you how to heat your home, how to drive your car, then you would have said that will never happen, but it did happen, and they achieved it by creating this big narrative of the end of the world. And this characterizes then our uh, climate policy. If you ask around, how have uh, forest fires developed over the last hundred years? I described it in uh, chapter two of my book. You'll be surprised. Uh, to see that there's been a continuous decline, a clear decline over the last 20 years. <coughs> a decline of 4% um, uh, of uh, forests being affected uh, to 2.5% now. How come? Well, because we can detect them more easily and fight them better. Or if you ask a question, um, do the lethal consequences from natural disasters increase or decrease, most people, due to the disinformation of the mainstream media and uh, by politicians, would assume that this has, of course, increased. This is dramatically wrong. The number of deaths due to uh, floods, hurricanes, other extreme weather events, uh, heat, drought, etc., have decreased by 90% in the uh, in the last um, uh, century, and they have halved again in the last 10 to 20 years. It's interesting to see that people don't know that. That's why I try to create an alternative. Um, public um, perception. I uh, travel Germany. I have public, uh, whole public events. 
and more and more people come uh, above all those who first feel the pinch it's uh, small and medium-sized companies many of them uh, don't know how to survive because the energy prices make their products so expensive that they either have to go abroad if they can or else they simply close down and the um, tip of this whole thing uh, culminates uh, culminated a few days ago when Mr. Habeck uh, thought that he could switch off our oil and gas uh, heating, uh, thinking that we can uh, heat with um, um, electricity. One thing is for sure that over the next few days we will have a serious shortage of electricity. McKinsey has um, shown again um, we will have a, a shortage of 30 megawatts um, of um, power in 2030. They're decommissioning ever more gas-fired, uh, coal-fired power stations next year in March. Uh, the uh, coal-fired power stations that uh, were licensed to continue um, provisionally now uh, are supposed to be switched off. And now, unfortunately, the um, sound has failed. Unfortunately, the sound has failed. Okay, Marie. So, um, we'll move from uh, uh, combustion engine cars to electric cars, from uh, gas uh, heating to electricity heating, and we'll have a, um, a combination of this situation. And in the next elections, we will um, have a decision um, about uh, what the decision uh, people take will be based on energy. Um, um, big companies invest in uh, China, Daimler, for instance. They uh, beef up their engine production there. Others go to the U.S. because power prices there are the th a third of what the price is here in Germany. It's interesting to see uh, China makes 30%, and now, unfortunately, the sound is gone again, so we can't hear what the speaker is saying. So, jobs are being um, relocated. Now, this situation arose in parallel to the pandemic. Up until 2019, everything uh, was still honky-dory. Then in 2019, they started switching off uh, numerous power stations, and we didn't notice uh, any uh, impact on the power prices. Why? Because during the pandemic, the um, economic activities were reduced. That's why they could decommission three major power stations. Um, 
coal-fired ones. Now, in 2021, moving out of the pandemic, there was new economic growth, and that led to a situation that the power prices exploded long before the Ukrainian war. So don't uh, don't believe anyone who says we have an energy crisis because of Ukraine. The Ukraine. Uh, that happened much earlier, and I would like to show it to you with the help of my presentation. I'll try to um, share my screen with you. I hope it'll work. Right. I hope you can see this. Can you see this? Yes. Okay. So let me see that I find the right chart. So that's my topic, the energy crisis and how to deal with it. And you see here the development of the energy prices in 2021. So what was the case for years? We had about 50 euros per megawatt, megawatt hour. And then amidst 2021, something happened, which is that the economy came back from pandemic, from the lockdown, from the shutdown. And now, of course, energy was in demand, but the uh, power wasn't there. So the price was broad. And that's what you see here at the end of this chart, in which so, so you see the price five-folded from 50 to 150 and uh, euro cent per kilowatt hour. So 50 euro is five cent per kilowatt hour, 50 euros per megawatt hour, five cent per megawatt per kilowatt. So that's what was the climb. Uh, factor five, just to uh, show you the relation, we talk about the uh, stock brokerage prices. Um, you pay 30, 40 euro cent, so five euro, five cent is the um, production, 10 euro, uh, 10 cent is the um, distribution and the rest of taxes. But the basis for everything, all processes in Germany, is the uh, stock market price uh, prior to the Ukraine crisis, after the end of the pandemic. Um, because during pandemics, tons of power plants were shut down. May I ask a question of clarification at this point? It actually starts at the beginning of October 2021, if I see it right. Well, it started in July, really. So August, after the summer break, so to say, that's when it started. Okay, but um, you um, made the link to the so-called pandemic. But if I uh, recapitulate, I'm not quite sure there, but in November, we went to the next lockdown, if I remember right. So the pandemic was uh, not over, uh, officially at least. Or was there no lockdown then? I don't remember. We didn't have a lockdown at the time. Oh yeah, that was a year before that. We had full industrial production back. 
Um, I know that as I am supervisory board member of the biggest European uh, copper uh, plant, so the copper demand steeply started after the summer break. The only ones that were back uh, were the Chinese because uh, long into this year they had the lockdowns. As, uh, many people had wanted to so yeah sorry I, I got that wrong that was a year earlier and um, that's when uh, the the jab campaign started um, that was my mistake sorry okay okay so let me go back so now here you see many people say Ukraine February it really started a bit more up uh, from 250 to up to 600 as you see and uh, it went back down immediately so it normalized so it's not more it didn't normalize but to the initial value and then in Germany we had a debate you may remember we have a gas problem not a, not a power problem that was Mr. Habeck said so and uh, nobody we knew it was in discussion that the gas import would be reduced uh, boycotts uh, were done and uh, it all ended in the explosion of the pipelines and you see here how the energy prices develop why because uh, the gas power plants couldn't be operated and the coal plants that uh, could have been put to the grid had to do that that was only done in autumn uh, that um, about 10,000 megawatt uh, coal power plants will be taken out of the reserve fleet and uh, then immediately the spot market price dropped and uh, then there was a brief discussion could we switch the power the nuclear power plants back on but the chancellor didn't want that and so on uh, the uh, now um, end of uh, April we'll have it done and the prices went up and we'll stay there probably this is the price well we have today for electric power we see it didn't go down again so we are at uh, 10 to 15 cent that is three times of that of China and US have with this power price you can't simply do steel metal industry chemical industry aluminium to uh, compatible prices no way and uh, in uh, mid-april we see when the next three power plants will be switched off the situation will not relax and get worse we have the highest power plant power prices after Burkina Faso and that means um, that the basic industries will uh, not be able to work. Parallel, EU did the following. It did the certificates, the CO2 certificates were full-folded in price. So um, that CO2 that we want to reduce, 
um, is at least a contribution to the global warming. I don't think it's uh, the sole responsible substance. There's natural processes that um, have taken course over the past 50 years, but it is uh, smart to draw or push CO2 back and make it more expensive. What the EU did is completely off the track that in an energy crisis, the CO2 prices um, should be uh, shot up uh, by four times. And you see what this means. If you have 80 euros per ton, or, and that's what every company pays, every uh, power plant, uh, be it lignite, be it coal, it doubles the uh, energy price. You see that here in lignite by 7.4 cent on top, and uh, coal and gas is uh, 5.9 and 3.4 percent, respectively, which really pushed the prices up. So that we are facing a power supply crisis and the power and an energy price crisis, which won't be dealt with. We can only do that by extending the offer, and that's not done. <laughs> and. Uh, to understand this in a better way, we all know um, the discussion of the three power plants, whether they should be uh, kept in operation or not. So um, now it's been switched off. They've been switched off, knowing that uh, this power can only be bought from uh, France or Czechoslovakia, which is nuclear uh, power. But uh, it's interesting to see how the people are deceived here. We all remember that Mr. Harvey said this is only 4,500 megawatts of uh, about 90,000 megawatts, which we have a peak load at a few, a little percentage only, and so on. Uh, so that's. Uh, not a single percent really uh, that will be the effect and this is why the price is not going to change so that tells us that this guy doesn't know what he's talking about or he is simply lying to us you see here this uh, chart it's a bit complicated to read but we need to share some knowledge here. That's the merit order, which is the sequence of power plants as they are switched on. Of course, that is done by prices, and the cheapest is nuclear energy. That's the yellow section. Uh, they produce for two cents. Uh, that's everything included. And then we have lignite, that's the second cheapest. Black is coal, and the most expensive is gas. Gas power plants are the most expensive power plants at all, in all of them. And you see what happens if you switch nuclear energy off. It's not two of 3% in price, but 
you have to see the level by the merit order if you look at all the power supply is shifted to the left if you go from up uh, down then energy uh, nuclear energy is taken away the whole block moves to the left and we have a jump that the gas power plants supply regular energy needs they are just there to be switched on to cover the peaks and what we see here is they double the power price that happens if you switch on if you get over 30,000 megawatts and you have a need uh, you always need the gas plants and you always have the high power prices that's doubling that's not two three percent and that is what happened now without the gas power plants we can't get along they are the most expensive and now as the cheap uh, pipeline gas has been uh, taken away and we have to uh, get the expensive in LNG it's going to be higher even and I think it's important to really to show the points here and uh, we have to know that the federal government in their coalition agreement said that we need more renewable energies and as we all know that's only possible if at the same time for the times that we don't have renewable energy available which is at night where the sun never supplies power and wind um, is uh, not there on 140 days so that's uh, we have uh, windless if I look out the uh, window now we have a uh, low winds only and uh, for example here we need energy um, and the trains are going to run now so we need power now and there's no wind if I look out the window and this is gas power plants at least the federal government says they want to have 40 to 50 new gas plants you wonder what gas they're going to burn don't we have a gas problem what's the prices for this and how is it supplied and how are the gas plants going to affect the power prices and that's a problem which is at our doorstep and the political decision as uh, Chancellor Schultz said every day we do four new windmills solar panels until everything is covered and still to stabilize the grid we need 40 to 50 new gas power plants and they have to be built and don't forget that the lack of nuclear energy alone has to be replaced and that alone uh, won't be done by the renewables just so we know what we're talking about because most of you have the impression that we've uh, progressed uh, quite far that's what the federal government tell us every day we have 40 percent of our power from solar and wind so we only need a bit more and then it'll work out but that's a big error because um, um, solar power um, only makes up 20% of uh, power in Germany and they want to shift uh, to electricity for 
mobility for cars, uh, for heating of homes and for uh, industry. And if you do that, then, as you can see, we have to talk about primary energy. And with primary energy, what we can see, uh, the right bar, you can see wind energy 3.3, solar 1.8%. So, only 5.5% come from renewables, so you really need to increase the uh, quantity by 20-fold. Well, not exactly, because uh, the um, heat pump is a bit more efficient than gas, and uh, the uh, elect electric uh, motor is a bit more efficient than the combustion engine. But this won't work in the next 5 or 10 or 20 years. Even in 2045, we still will require gas. And that is what the world are doing. We believe that Germany can heal the world. That can't work because we have a minute influence on what happens globally. You can see coal and oil, uh, gas, and you can see at the very top, you can't really see it, there's tiny yellow dot there, that's solar energy, that's 3%. So, until we're there, um, until we've achieved the transformation, as they call it uh, nowadays, <coughs> decades will come and go. And this graph is, I feel, is particularly important because it shows that, uh, as I said, just like um, uh, with Corona, in order to impose a certain policy against the people's interests, you need to uh, monger fear. First of all, uh, they say uh, we're the worst. Uh, Greta Thunberg said that, uh, that Germany is the worst in terms of CO2 production, which is, of course, absolutely untrue, because only this country, Germany, has removed 40% of CO2 because it uh, rehabilitated an entire country, the former German Democratic Republic, that was one of the worst polluters in the past. So we could be very proud of what we've achieved. No other country in the world has achieved that. Now, if we take a look at uh, per capita uh, emissions on the right-hand side were way behind Saudi Arabia, Australia, Canada, um, the Netherlands, um, even China has a higher per capita CO2 emission than Germany. So we're not doing so poorly. And in the center of this graph, you can see what um, uh, Paris, and we keep hearing it again and again, we have to meet the Paris Accord, etc. Paris is the commitment of the industrialized uh, countries to reduce their CO2 emissions. Germany is to reduce them by 50 percent to 2030, now um, 60 percent by 2030. But look at the right-hand side, look at the uh, Chinese bar here. China declared in Paris that, well, we're a developing country, so we don't need to do anything. We want to do more, actually, because um, they uh, are responsible for 30% of uh, global emissions, and they want to go far beyond that. So 
uh, even uh, Germany um, is like the German reduction is gobbled up several times over by China. Why is that so? Because the UN considers China a developing country, which um, it no longer is, as we know it is the world's uh, export champion. It's our main competitor when it comes to machinery and um, wind uh, power stations, for instance, or uh, electric vehicles and many other things. The only real uh, frame of reference um, I've shown on the left-hand side, we have to look at how much uh, CO2 does a country emit per $1,000 of um, a gross domestic problem, um, uh, product. You can see that uh, Sweden is doing very well, um, Switzerland, France, the UK, and we're also moving uh, very close to this, and you can see the top four all have nuclear power, and uh, nevertheless, we're doing very well because our uh, industry has been saving energy uh, like none other um, because the energy prices are so high. There is no circular economy like in Germany where every crap is turned into something um, because energy is so expensive, so we turn uh, scrap into aluminium, into some, uh, copper, recycled new copper, and the energy content that the old copper contains is salvaged that way, and we're tailed by Japan. Now look at uh, China, 0.5 tons, and um, that's what I really look at. We must not allow Germany to be burdened with additional CO2 costs, thus destroying the uh, competitiveness of our jobs, so they migrate to China. So if you, that's would happen if uh, Daimler moves its production to um, China or BASF, you'll have a threefold CO2 footprint. Production in China produces three times as much CO2 because they are based on coal-fired power stations. And that's where we have to say that's not acceptable. We are driving out jobs. We're driving out uh, the tax uh, revenue that we use to uh, fund our social uh, security system. And at the end of the day, we generate more CO2. What kind of a stupid policy is that? We have to change this. And that uh, takes me uh, to what we're looking at here, you know that we need to build five uh, wind power stations a day, and we want to have three times as much wind uh, generation uh, and three times as much uh, solar production. But the reality is there are phases where there's no wind available. From the 1st of December to the 17th of 18th December, there was no wind in Germany, very little of it anyway. And this brown curve, that's the energy consumption in Germany. Um, so you can see uh, during the week we need a bit more power, during the weekends less because there's less work going on. And then at the end of December, it actually sort of matched ish and you can see the yellow peaks there that's solar production you can forget about that in december of course small peaks there but that's it now mr Habeck comes along and others telling you well we only need to treble that well then 
we have a solution. And then those who didn't uh, skip school and maths uh, on Fridays will notice that 3 times 0 equals 0. Now, I show you the uh, Havoc plan. We increase uh, wind generation threefold and uh, solar generation fourfold, and then you can see in the first 14 days of December, nothing much happens. The gap remains because 3 times 0 remains 0. And on the right hand side, something happens, the opposite happens. You have excess power, no end. So we have 120,000 megawatts that we don't know what to do with. And then there's those smart asses who say, well, we'll turn it into hydrogen and we make it uh, into hydrogen and then we've solved the problem because we can take this uh, surplus into those valleys, production valleys. Or generation values. But we have to know what the scientific efficiency of this process is. Turning aeolic power, um, i.e. using electricity uh, to um, perform electrolysis, generating hydrogen, I need to store it and then I have to uh, turn it into uh, power again, electricity again. I do that with a um, hydrogen Turbine. It's not available yet, but let's assume that it has an efficiency of 45%. Then the entire chain, everything costs energy, um, hydrolysis, hydrolysis uh, compression, and uh, regeneration. So, bottom line, you need four times as much power, or you could say it's four times expensive. So, if you put in um, wind power at 7.5 euro cents per kilowatt hour that is the uh, price that wind power is paid for today it was increased by 25 percent so that it will be uh, worthwhile in germany because we were down to 5.88 and uh, nobody invested anymore so uh, they said okay let's assume we um, we just have to know it's us who pays that this more expensive wind power is paid for by all electricity um, customers, the um, wind station, uh, wind uh, uh, power station owners are happy because they get more money. So uh, 7.5 times 4 is 30. That adds uh, capital um, investments because electrolysis costs money, um, storage costs money. So uh, you wind up at uh, 43 euro cents per kilowatt hour. That's the uh, spot market price. You haven't uh, transported the power at all yet. It's just generated. And now the super clever um, uh, people come along. Oh, all we need is economies of scale. We need a bit more of that. No, those are natural uh, scientific um, well, these are uh, limits imposed by uh, laws of nature. Uh, physicists know that it's the Kano process in regenerating. You might get up to 45% efficiency rate if you're really doing very well, really well. But that's the limit. It has nothing to do with cost. It's just a law of nature because the efficiency of 
um, uh, power generation depends on um, uh, temperature differences and the cooling process T1 divided by T2. That applies to all gas power stations, coal power fire power stations for the combustion engine. And that, that's why it's so bad. It only has an efficiency rate of 25%. That is something that is uh, you that you cannot modify. And a um, federal government has to accept this. There is no green policy that can change the laws of nature. So that takes us to a um, power price of 40 cents per kilowatt hour. And that is why uh, this route going down to uh, uh, down, going down the hydrogen route is doomed to fail from the get-go. And now let me uh, explain to you, uh, they say that you need only 2% of uh, our surface area for wind power generation. Um, that is the area that we need for the uh, power station as well. That is the area um, within the zoning plan, but you need a certain distance to the nearest homes for uh, noise protection reasons. And if you add this area, you need eight times as much um, we need 15% of the land surface, and that's what it would look like then all over Germany, like in Thuringia here. And I won't even speak about the impact on um, birds of prey, bats, etc. Now, what can we do? And that takes me to the end of my presentation pretty soon. Now, we have gas reserves um, in our own soil. We need to look at this. The Federal Office for Geosciences says that's enough for the next 20 to 40 years. You just need to be willing to produce it. And it's uh, a thousand meters deep, it's uh, in shoal, and it would have to be produced with fracking processes. Now they say, oh, fracking is so bad, we don't want this. Well, the fact is, we're importing fracking from the US. And we're not, uh, we don't care at all what liquids they use there um, and what terrible side effects they accept, i.e. the boreholes remain open in the U.S., the methane uh, can still um, uh, move out of the borehole again. We could do it better, we could do it cheaper, and it's all over North Germany. But it is being rejected. The Chancellor said, no, that's way too late. We don't need that, even though we know if we started tomorrow, we could have uh, gas production within the year. The second thing we need to know, the US, who are supplying us, will have a huge problem before the end of the decade because President Biden on the first day in office said, I don't want any fracking on public soil anymore. And this is why these fields, uh, these gas fields will stop producing four to five years down the road. So now let's ask ourselves, what do the Americans do uh, if the gas prices go up? because they don't have enough gas anymore, will they say, oh, well, our German friends whose pipeline we may uh, just have blown up will deliver gas to them? No, they say, stop exports of gas. What do we uh, care about the Germans? We're looking at our own 
um, compatriots. So that is what's down the line, and that's why we need to develop our own gas, because the Russian gas, uh, due to the boycott, will no longer be fully available to us because uh, Russia is uh, building a, something called the Power of Siberia. You can read up on it, and they'll start building next year, and if the Chinese build it, then it's done in two years' time. And then this gas that used to come to us will go to China in the future. And that is why an intelligent boycott will be a different thing and increases pressure on our own production. We'll look at that a few years down the road. Uh, road. And now I'll speak about the second solution that we will have to uh, develop. We have uh, tried to uh, carbon um, sequester um, CO2 that was successful. And then the government made a, a carbon capture sequestration ban. Um, a law from 2017 says that CO2 can no longer be sequestered. And that led to a situation where this plant here was relocated to Canada. And uh, technology has uh, continued developing. Um, um, Estonia is taking the CO2, pressing it into basalt. It combines with CO2 to create dolomite, and it will uh, stay there uh, forever and a day. And um, it will mineralize within two years. And we'll have to do that because the Chinese, the Indonesian, and the South Africans want to continue burning coal. And if we take it serious with the CO2, we have to show them how to sequester CO2. And then we can demand they're doing that as well. There's research being done worldwide. Germany and France banned it. And this is the death toll on uh, German lignite power stations. Uh, at the end of the day, those are the only opportunities, if it's CO2 free, if it's uh, green um, power stations that make us independent of the world market. Nuclear power in Germany, unfortunately, for political reasons, because Angela Merkel uh, started in 2011 and it's been continued by uh, Chancellor Scholz, uh, beginning 15th of April of this year, Germany will have no longer no nuclear power station anymore. And you have to know that ISAR 2, for years, for decades, was among the best stations in the world. It was the safest uh, power station in the world with the shortest downtimes. And then we'll import power from France and the Czech Republic. So this is um, done and dusted. And what do we have to do? We have to go back into uh, research into nuclear power because there are interesting new developments where um, we uh, see the promise of producing power without long-term um, residues. Research 
needs to be done, but it's all done outside of Germany. The interesting thing, however, is that, again, in this case, the federal government acts against the majority uh, opinion of the population. 80% of people say, continue operating the existing nuclear power stations while uh, we have an energy uh, problem. There's only one party um, that has a different opinion, that's the Greens. All other um, um, voters say, let's continue. And uh, similar with the combustion engine, there's a survey on the end of the combustion engine by 2013, which indicates that there is a clear majority of Germans who say, we don't want to go around with electric uh, vehicles only um, beginning 2030, where we know that when the government uh, 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 will switch off the power when we um, uh, when the power is short by simply switching off the power. They can stop our mobility, and that is why I warn against this last bastion of uh, freedom um, to be sacrificed to the Greens. And the beauty is the Germans really don't want this. There's only one party, only the voters of the Green Party want to ban um, combustion engines. 54% of them want to ban it. All the other 70% of Germans say we don't want this. We don't want to be reduced to a single technology because there is the possibility of operating uh, combustion engines with e-fuels uh, in a CO2-neutral way. The fact that um, electric vehicles are not um, climate-neutral is something that we have to remember as well. Of course, they only use electricity, but it comes from um, coal-fired stations, uh, gas-fired stations, and mostly the battery comes from China and it's made with uh, coal-fired uh, fired, um, power stations, uh, uh, with power from coal-fired uh, fired power stations, and you need to operate the vehicle for 100,000 kilometers before you get, you have break-even. So these are my uh, demands, and it would be a good compendium of what would be the right alternatives to what the government tell us on a daily basis what we should do, i.e. Um, that they are um, rationing us, like in a, um, developing countries uh, soon to come, so we will have um, um, Hamburg divided into north, south, west and east, and um, for um, a few hours, one district will get power, and then the next district will get it. That is the situation you have in Africa today, and I'm sure that this will be the topic of the next federal elections, and I'm curious to see how that will impact on the uh, party structure. These are my uh, demands. I won't read them out. Most of them I mentioned already, the CO2-free uh, uh, coal technology fracking uh, uh, in an environmentally friendly way. That must be achieved here, new nuclear power, um, fusion reactor research, and above all, um, no ban on uh, gas heating. Um, you couldn't be more alien to um, citizens 
Thank you for your attention. And as I said, on the left-hand side, the uh, book where you can hear about the um, untruths that, are, that keep being spread, for instance, that uh, the uh, forest uh, fires are um, increasing on an annual basis. That's not true. You can find it there. Or uh, sea levels will rise by meters. All nonsense. Uh, even um, if you take the most likely um, projection of the World Climate uh, Council, it's only 40 centimeters and that can be handled. And then on the right-hand side, it's on the bestseller lists. Um, even though um, it's been uh, silenced by uh, the mainstream media, but the citizens don't allow themselves anymore to be fooled. They simply buy the book and so uh, they put it on the agenda. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Very interesting. I have a couple of questions from the audience, and I have a question myself. This looks as if, if you see what's going on, uh, independent of how necessary it is to save CO2, it uh, appears to be something like, uh, not in the sense of um, stabilizing production capacities, and it uh, doesn't seem to <clears throat> try and protect the population against uh, high energy prices. What do you think is the reason for this? Germany can only lose with this policy. Well, there's a number of reasons for this. We have a very strong left anti-capitalist, politically active constellation. That's not only the leftists, but the Greens in their core are an anti-market economy and anti-capitalistic uh, party. If I just list uh, all the bans and uh, the uh, mandates that they have uh, issued to pe put people on the path they want them on, uh, the time wouldn't be enough. And there, I would assume that some of them want to uh, have good intentions, saying there's a big problem and Germany has to save the world. We have to be the good ones, cost it what it wants, even if our industry is completely devastated by this. Uh, that is the unsmart people, but there are a number of uh, people who are convinced uh, of what they're doing and really believe um, uh, we have the wise old man that's the, uh, against the European sense, against uh, experience, against tradition, <clears throat> and uh, that's what we see everywhere. And we have a media landscape that enforces this. You hear that every day. Uh, if I switch on the public radio, um, there is a weather report uh, I hear about global warming. I've got an ISA chart uh, that shows that over seven years the temperatures haven't increased and if I ask people what's your impression don't you think that's all much worse of course um, there is a heat wave here and this there and now we have the reports on it and it's contextualized 
uh, which is the climate. And if I have this narrative, I can uh, manipulate the people to go where I want them to go. And the Greens wanted this 40 years ago against consumed terror. And they, at the time, they wanted to prohibit us from eating meat and uh, prohibit pr private cars. And I remember that uh, chemi chemistry has to go. Uh, I remember that slogan. In the beginning, they were even against computers. They stopped that. But uh, if you melt that down and try to implement this, and this fear mongering and uh, really get this psychos, these strong and reinforced by the media every day, which are the, not the fourth power controlling what the government does, but who in the end have developed to become a tool of the government and a policy, public uh, radio says it understands itself. If the government tells them what to say, then they go along. They had that in Corona and they're doing it with the climate crisis as well. May I tie into this uh, by saying that the Greens have become an anti-capitalist uh, party is something that I would cast into doubt, uh, particularly if you look at the uh, leaders. But uh, getting back to the question itself, on one slide you had written that, um, in your opinion, the European Union has an interest in uh, driving power prices up, so that would be uh, a go beyond uh, Germany. And the other thing is that the President of the uh, European Commission, who uh, um, has um, uh, taken the lead here, is of course um, um, a right-wing uh, politician. Now the question is, what would be the interest of the European Union uh, to promote this? That's an excellent question. Why? Well, there is a number of aspects to it. One is the question of uh, um, of um, wealth. The people are quite well off over the past 30 years. People think they could do with it. They could uh, handle an agricultural industry which is um, organic knowing that we need two to three times the space for it. You could say, we don't know all these cars, and if it's only one country and others not so much, I do think, uh, and I think the prohibition of um, combustion engines is in the interest of um, France, because they have stopped building big cars. They can't have an Audi A8 or a BMW 7, and they can't compete with it. And they are half uh, Japanese and half Chinese already. So that is a situation out of many, many different interests. And the question is, why does a Christian Democratic Union vote to prohibit combustion engines. 
I don't have a good answer to that, apart from this mainstream, the screen mainstream to be, uh, they're trying to follow that. The mainstream is coined by the media and the impression is that they don't want to be the old fashioned guys, they want to be on Vogue, they want to do the good, we want to save the world, and uh, they don't want to oppose that. And I have no clear answer, a uh, simple answer to that. It is a bit, all this climate policy is a replacement religion. You have the sinners, you have Armageddon, you have the buy-off, you have the trade-off, you have everything. And uh, it all comes back. And uh, this is why I can only say, if you want to commit yourself to society, look at the facts, look at the facts, look at what temperatures do, uh, look at, I, have, I can share that chart if you're interested here, this is the temperatures, they have dropped for seven years. That's a blue graph here, or uh, I can show you the um, uh, fire forest area is dropped. So, um, since we have been having satellite data, we can we can clearly see what's going on. Uh, let me see how I get back. The Nortus says the optimum would be uh, 3.75 degree. Who came up with this 1.2 degrees? And what the, what's so bad about the situation that we had 1,000 years ago? The northern hemisphere was just as warm as it is today. Why is that a bad thing? Why do we want to get back to the coldest times, 1860, starting of an ice age? Why is it our goal to get back to that? Uh, the Earth is becoming greener. Just think about that. It's um, magnificent. Of course, CO2 has issues. We know that it increases the sea levels and <laughs> global warming should be limited, quite clear. But quite clearly, CO2 is uh, life, is photosynthesis. And that led not to the leaves, but only to the fruit, wheat, corn, soya got bigger, 15%. So I don't want to release CO2 here, but that's not in the debate. It's a unilateral debate to force a deindustrialization process in Europe. I have no complete explanation for that yet, but I do think <coughs> that the elements which I've seen uh, the uh, neglections of uh, well-being, 
Linke, die da Interesse dran haben. Uh, there is uh, some uh, things, prosperity that has to green. Uh, just said we have to get rid of the Germans. Germany has to be eliminated from the map. It is a auto hate, so to say. Uh, it's all the best, the only bad. The, German, Germany doing bad is a good Germany. Uh, this is ideologies and things that uh, are being now uh, coming back in a green camouflage and uh, taking ground, unfortunately. Well, camouflage tends to be green anyway. Well, I agree, of course. Um, it, it sounds plausible. Even um, um, so, it's uh, something that uh, kind of questions the CO2 narrative. It's of course a huge business model for certain um, companies. Now, if you imagine what needs to be uh, transformed, rebuilt, then uh, it costs a lot of money, and the money will flow. Of course, that's quite clear. This has never been seen before. A redistribution from top to bottom, from bottom to top. This is unmatched. Um, only the FTB uh, political program is what the Greens and the SPD do is uh, madness. They take the money out of the poor and give it to the rich, uh, the monies who could, the people who can afford building a wind park, and of course that is big. Uh, uh, commercial interests and uh, they are just uh, being sold a little bit better so it's good it's uh, too small and so on you have to see this big investment into solar parks and offshore power plants it's international capital that goes there is it uh, such that this wind such a wind power station that's a question from the audience does it make any sense in terms of its energy yield, and in terms of what you invest and you um, cover up soil? And um, if you strike an overall balance, what is the upshot? I did that analysis. It's in my book. It is really the case that historically it's interesting to see. Sometimes you get the impression that we want to go back to 18th century. At the time, the human development was stopped by the return on energy invest. How much energy do I have to put in to get uh, um, amount of energy out? And that was the ratio was five always biomass. That was the major part we got energy from. So old school iron and uh, anything. We, we use uh, hydropower has a bit of a higher ROI and now by coal and uh, steam engines and oil and gas we got to a, a factor of about 60. That's the development of the industry. So that means one unit of energy in and 60 out. And nuclear power came to 100. One kilocalorie or kilowatt is put in, you get 100 back. <coughs> Wind, we are developing backwards to 15 to 13. So I hear that, uh, yes, wind 
It only pays off after 10 years. That's not really the case. After half a year, you got the energy and put back. But it is not the return that you have in conventional power plants. Solar is even worse. Solar is about one to seven, one to five. So you have to wait seven years until you get the kilowatt hour uh, in, uh, you get that back out. So if you have a solar plant uh, 25 years, uh, you have a factor of five uh, after five years. So that is problematic because these two factors, they, these are the producing capacities that we are working for. And I'm not against solar energy and not wind energy. I've worked on that for years. The first wind turbine has my name on it. But we have to know about one thing. It's different whether I do this in Saudi Arabia with solar, for example, where I have 2,500 hours, or whether I do it in Germany with thousand hours. That's a factor two and a half improvement. The same applies for wind. In uh, the north of Germany, wind makes sense, offshore as well, but in Bavaria it is sheer stupidity. The um, electric power generated from wind has the third potence of the wind speed. And if you go from the north of Germany to the south, you have the wind speed. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? But it, it is half by half, one and a half by one and a half by one and a half. That means you have an eighth of the power. And um, the law says if you build a wind turbine in Bavaria, you get much more payment for it than in the north of Germany, and that's completely inefficient. That's being done now by Habeck, uh, um, punishing the Bavarians, but it clearly shows the ideologic stu uh, stubbornness, not to do it where it's most efficient, but uh, we uh, make the Bavarians happy if we uh, give them the power the, the, the wind turbines, but economically, it's disaster. Yeah, I have another couple of questions. Um, you mentioned this ban on sequestration, if I remember that right, and um, so it only seems to exist in Germany and France, nowhere else in the world. Is there a reason for that? Now, if we followed the CO2 story, that would be the solution, wouldn't it? Yes, um, I have to look. We have to look at the history. I was at RWE um, Power Company at the time, and we wanted to implement this into the areas where we would put the gas in. Those big chambers, we can press it into the uh, stone and the ground and uh, then take it out again or leave it inside. And there was an initiative um, by the Greens in Northern Germany 
the opposition leader at the time was uh, Robert Habeck, the minister now. And <clears throat> in my book, I have uh, said this, uh, we are not the CO2 rubbish bin of the nation. And um, so we managed uh, CDO turned around saying, no, we're not going to do it. And the media pushed it up, reasoning, saying it uh, will get back out. Uh, to the surface, which is stupid. Even if it did, um, I would say it's much more dangerous than uh, on over a natural gas uh, bubble uh, than a CO2. Even a, a CO2 is much less poisonous than natural gases. And the emotion went up. Ms. Kunag with her gas mask uh, demonstrating, and this is how they put that ban through. It was uh, pushed through the media, and then um, the people from Lower Saxony dropped out. Uh, Brunberg stayed in, which is the states in the northern Germany. Um, they wanted to put it into the ground, and uh, that didn't work out. And so they passed a law that in Germany and France it is prohibited. Now, this is being released, finally, because the Norwegian minister, prime minister said, I offer you our gas fields, which are empty now. And um, we could uh, use it. They are empty. So we offer you to press it in. And uh, Mr. Scholz said, this interesting development. And Iceland even built a port for CO2 vessels. Because they said, well, just bring us your CO2 along. We press it down. Of course, they want to get money for it. Costs a bit. And uh, this is why I think we see a development here. You have to be a bit positive in all of this incapability and the self-destruction which is ongoing now. I would say we are going to return to uh, using carbon and get this CO2 state the CO2 off in Germany as well. Just imagine Mr. Habeck a year in a year from now wonders what to do with the uh, coal plants that have been activated a year ago in the Russian crisis. And the question is to switch them off finally and enforce the power crisis and the interesting thing is now he has to say oh, well we could sequestrate co2 and he did that in december for the first time publicly he declared you should look at co2 sequestration and now let me uh, share a story i was writing my book and i heard that quote from the greens where Habeck said we are the rubbish bin of the nation i checked it up you have to do that if you do a book you have to check the quote where they're still there um, things do seem to disappear. It disappeared that month. A fortnight before Habeck announced that they should look into sequestration, they deleted that quote from him from their website. Um, it's a good thing there's way back machines. You can look at it. I, I looked it up. You can find it back if you want. So that shows us that things are going on. 
für die Grünen ist es, glaube ich, so. But for the Greens, I think the bigger evil is a discussion on keeping the nuclear power plants running in operation. I think that's the that's the um, that's the meltdown for them. Uh, that they can't do that. But you can't. Uh, get out of nuclear coal and gas energy so they will have to find some way out and i think it's going towards coal now they're saying oh we don't we don't want to have the coal power plants because um, they don't want to lose, uh, lose complete uh, touch they say we uh, do the coal green now uh, people get outraged. Uh, no, they say industry, cement, uh, power plant, other emittents, they can't really be replaced, so we'll do CO2 sequestration. That's the first step towards truth. So it'll be around. The question is only, uh, do we import that from China or elsewhere, or do we do it ourselves? It'll be there. That's a fact. I have a question as well. Um, we hear a lot about uh, many nuclear stations to be built in different countries. Um, how does that work? Is that less dangerous? Are there fewer problems with um, disposal? Um, or uh, is there experience with that? Do you know, know anything about it? Well, the mini stations that are being offered right now are still third generation and they're smaller and cheaper. That is the crucial aspect. They are um, built um, on a smaller scale. The classic nuclear power stations have become very expensive by now because because you have to have uh, extra some extra concrete against a uh, plane crash etc this finish uh, one um, it became very expensive and that is why this is a trend towards driving down the cost but at the end of the day the critical achilles heel of nuclear power uh, there are two of them there can be a meltdown despite all uh, efforts to avoid it um, if you don't consider uh, for instance like the japanese failed to consider that uh, there might be a tsunami unlikely in germany but of course uh, theoretically a meltdown can occur and the um, second um, question is of course the solution of the um, disposal um, we never solved that problem so nuclear power is phased out but the radioactive elements are still uh, next door to the power stations in uh, poorly protected uh, containers i'm uh, advocating the fourth generation that's a new development uh, this can be built in a small on a small scale it can be designed such that uh, the waste is uh, not active for a long time and can be used as input for uh, um, uh, as a fuel. Uh, it's a different process. Uh, it doesn't use slow neutrons, but fast neutrons. 
so that the um, elements uh, that are in the waste can be uh, converted into uh, new fuel and this is a global trend the chinese are working on it the americans the russians have a pilot reactor only germany is not um, participating it's illegal in germany it's not being subsidized that's bitter but this is the trend What's important is that it must be inherently safe. So the process must be such that if the cooling of a reactor fails, and that is the big uh, cause for a uh, meltdown, that it then moves to a safe mode. Unlike um, um, happened in Chernobyl where it escalated. There was another risk uh, that you mentioned, didn't mention, which is the misuse for nuclear arms. Yes, of course, you have that with the conventional uh, power stations, with the um, new design. If you use the fuel rods um, that have been used that uh, nobody has a solution for and the government says that nobody wants to have them over the next 50 years, nobody wants to have them. Uh, we had a solution, Gordon, but we um, undid that ourselves. But you can, of course, say if somebody steals those elements, they can... Uh, isolate the plutonium and yeah of course it can do that but that risk in Germany or the civilized world I'd say is rather limited of course in other countries Iran they uh, are developing the, the atom bomb but uh, since we moved out, well, they didn't stop because of it, they just continue. So that's a killer argument. Well, you can turn it into a bomb, yes. Um, who in Germany would expect any government to turn it into a nuclear bomb at some stage? What does this mini breeder mean? What's the size? 100 megawatts, 100 to 200 megawatts. That's the small ones. But I mean, the, the physical object, how big is it? Today's bigger stations are 1,500 megawatts. So the three that we're decommissioning are 4,500 uh, megawatts. I'm talking about the physical space. How big is that? All right. Well, well that's really small. They want to containerize it. And then you don't have... Of course, you need some cooling, but... The reactor itself it will be in a container. Container, that means 100 by 100 meters? Yeah, yeah, less than 100 meters. So you have a container with a nuclear power plant inside? That is uh, challenging, isn't it? Well, of course, that's not just the container. Of course, there will be a safety um, perimeter and everything, of course. Um, as I said, I'm a, a fan of the. I'm not a fan of these small units. Need a thousand locations. God knows what. Uh, you'd need ten locations to replace a classical one. I'm really in favor um, in working in the next generation and give a new drive to uh, nuclear power and phase out the old one. 
as nuclear submarines as well. They're not as big, are they? Yeah, of course. You're right. Obviously, you can see it there. I have a second question and on the power price development. You showed this quite clearly, and after I got the dates wrong a bit uh, concerning the lockdowns, as far as I know, in 2020 or 2021, there was a so-called energy market liberation in the European Union, and that has had an effect on the development of the prices. Do you know anything about this in general, perhaps? Well, the energy market liberalization was a lot earlier. That was back in 1988. But up until then, there were monopolies. Um, Hamburg was provided by the uh, Hamburg Electricity um, uh, Company, and everybody had a defined territory to provide. And you had to get your uh, power from them. This has been liberalized across Europe, but that was back 20 years back. And that led to uh, price decreases because uh, there was competition and the monopolies melted away. So I'm not really sure what you're getting at here, uh, referring uh, to 2020, 2021. Well, I wasn't precise in my question, perhaps. Uh, it's not the energy liberalization in general, but at the spot market, it was so-called liberalized that there is more uh, trade with energy prices. I think that, that was introduced at the time. I can't confirm that now. There was no fundamental change in um, the uh, spot market trading. Um, the uh, spot market in Leipzig covers Germany, the Czech Republic, um, Northern France, um, um, Holland, um, and I was in Austria yesterday because they <clears throat> quite relaxed. They have 60% um, hydropower. And uh, if we allow um, energy prices to explode in Germany, then we will tear down all of uh, Europe because there's only one price. Uh, not in Poland, not in Denmark. Those are uh, separate uh, supply areas, but where the grid extends over the uh, boundaries, uh, there's a single price. There's different taxes levied, of course. Belgium has different uh, taxes, but the spot price is the same. So uh, what happened in 2020, uh, 2021 that um, would have driven the prices? Well, the only thing that happened was um, uh, that um, uh, that the markets uh, kicked back in. I have Czech friends who had the big nuclear power plant in Germany producing very cheap. Um, they had good power prices. They have the highest uh, power price uh, in Europe now. They have to pay manifold of what they get for their own price. I'm not sure what you're referring to. Now, um, the, um, 
electricity price now is at about 13 euro cents so it used to be at five and that is the price that applies not only to germany but also the czech republic so right now they uh, would really have to earn uh, no end of money because they have cost of two to three euro cent per uh, kilowatt hour they should earn a heap of money well, the population doesn't get any of that. Well, yeah, that's possible, of course, because uh, that's the disadvantage of the merit order. Those who have the cheap nuclear power stations, they earn a lot of money. Um, um, the, the state utility or whatever. And the spot prices, that's what the citizens have to pay. And the spot price is characterized as is determined by the most expensive power station. That's the gas-fired ones. And anyone who produces power at a lower price will benefit. And that is why the federal government said we can't allow this. We have to have a excess profit tax, a tax on excess profits. So anybody who earns excessively from um, benefits excessively from these high uh, power prices we want to uh, charge them that's a huge um, effort to implement this instead of changing the merit order um, so if you um, charge a, a price uh, according to the generation price then you don't need all this by subsidizing a power prices down and then uh, what happens at the same time we charge those who earn too much money that has nothing to do with the market economy anymore that is really a centrally planned economy that we're talking about here and so that's probably the same in the Czech Republic we don't have a market economy at all because there's many, many suppliers. Many suppliers. We have a number of money monopoles and uh, global uh, strategy games with uh, and money making with energy. And uh, you said the market was liberalized. Um, the Hamburg people had to buy their uh, power from the city. The people in uh, the North could get together with whoever they wanted. And do you know Günther Janssen? He was yeah, no, he introduced I know him, yeah. the principle that you don't pay for the power that you consume. He wanted to, that the people buy for having enough. And so the producers were not incentivized to produce, to sell as much energy as they could, but um, they should just simply make sure that the uh, consumers don't use much but have enough. And I think that's a good idea. Um, that uh, works for everything, for health, for uh, money. The people have to have enough of what they need. and. Um, those who do that, uh, they um, are paid for supplying enough. Uh, what we have now is uh, monopolies that we are depending on who can blackmail us and who internationally uh, can, uh, can internationally team up. And it's all agreements. There's just a few, few uh, 
uh, corporations that do this. It's not a liberalization. It is a common uh, planned economy, really, and uh, we are subjected to that. I wouldn't agree with this because we have 650 um, municipal utilities um, producing uh, power still in Germany. Uh, we have a big one, that's RWE, but they're not alone. There are others who own power stations in Germany. No, I, I don't think that you, you with all uh, love of decentralization, um, you have to see that if you have a large uh, steel uh, manufacturer, or uh, better even aluminium, we have three aluminium uh, factories in Germany. They consume 2% of our national power, so you can't provide to them for a regional uh, supplier. So you need uh, several major power stations because one of them can have an outage, uh, could um, be down. Uh, so this is only possible with the uh, large um, transmission uh, power transmission uh, lines that we have in Germany. So I'm, I'm not opposed at all to uh, citizens uh, providing their own power with photovoltaic, which is possible. Um, municipalities can do that, but we have to make a distinction between industrial power and household power, um, the power that we need in our homes. So household power in Germany are 25% and 75% is industrial uh, power and the railway system. Just to give you a sense of proportion, and we won't be able to achieve that with uh, solar panels, not with, uh, not for uh, the railway system, because that is one of the, the biggest frauds that we have. You uh, aboard a, a train, and they guarantee a hundred percent green power, and that's not true. It all comes from uh, coal-fired power stations in Dutland. They purchase a bit of hydropower, of course, but at the end of the day, they know. They know that they use power from hard coal. They have to um, operate uh, when there's no wind, when there's no sun. So they purchase uh, power station uh, CO2 certificates from Norway, from Iceland, and that's how they make their power green. That's Deutsche Bahn. And for everybody to believe this, they repainted their trains green. And they increased the ticket fares. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Van Holt. Um, it was very interesting insights into the situation on the energy side of things. And there seems to be quite some dogma in all of this, as we see um, uh, with respect to the explanation and the reasons for the high power prices. Uh, so uh, here we have to say we need to shed some light into this, as you've just done, in order to uh, clear, clear up all these uh, wrong decisions. It's like with COVID, uh, the narratives are similar and they use the same uh, methodologies, the lockdown, the zero COVID, or those are the same representatives who say, oh, okay, we're nearly en route to socialism, then we can introduce eco-socialism. Those are the same representatives that we can see in the climate uh, um, 
topic. They say uh, we need a lockdown uh, to, uh, to save the climate. We have to stop industry. We need a lockdown. We can't uh, drive around anymore. It's a similar, very similar vein, a very similar vein um, narrative. It's totalitarian narratives. I think that is what we can agree on. Well, I'm careful when using these big words, but let me put it simply. It's certainly um, contrary to the interests of the citizens, and uh, we are paving the way to a GDR 2.0, a soft GDR, where the state regulates in detail what individuals uh, should do, and that's uh, why I would like to make this appeal. There will be a discussion about the smart meter. It will be introduced um, um, innocently. All we do is so we can save uh, power. When there's a lot of power, then the washing machine should run, and then people can save power. But at the end of the day, it will be um, the gateway to full control. You will wind up being transparent. You, they will exactly know uh, when you run your washing machine, whether you watch too much TV, um, even though it doesn't eat so much uh, power, or if you operate your washing machine too much. Those who told us uh, use um, um, a cloth to wash you, those are the ones who uh, will be the first to use the smart meter against us uh, if we don't um, fend it off immediately. Yeah. That's what I meant when I said totalitarian. Well, that's your words. Well, it can easily become a control instrument, an implement, and um, of course, they. Uh, if you monitor how people use uh, their power, it shows how you live. So it gives you a, it gives um, a lot of insight. So this is certainly not conducive to freedom and individuality. Okay. Yes. Thank you very, very much for your very interesting presentation. We will uh, um, put up a link. Be good if you help me advertise my book, because um, I uh, don't look at the uh, publishing figures, but I think uh, things that not everybody, information that not everybody has available every day, especially these uh, very bad narratives. We have a young generation lost because we spark fear in them. Uh, that the earth has no future. And this is a very horrible vision that we have injected them with and very bad development that instead of uh, encouraging young people to develop research, uh, enthusiasm, and take initiative in order to make things better, to learn, it is now much more handy to just to stick yourself to the road, and that is promoted, and that is uh, taken as a fact. And this is something that we have to turn around. That we uh, that it is fun again to learn. It's fun to discover things and take risks as well, and uh, take opportunities. And this is something that we that has to be fun. It has to be fun um, to have uh, to solve mathematical equations in grade seven. Um, that is what we have to uh, rediscover. Otherwise, we lose the young generation. 
Well, get off um, the fear, get off the sofa and join the party. Well, I'd say um, this is uh, something, um, well, I think there's a lot of things that that are fun, uh, not senseless fun, but um, it's great fun to develop things, to creatively create a, a new, a, a better world. I think that moves us all. Well, again, if you have a topic, uh, if you have some demand, I'm happy to come back and uh, join you again. We have to create a public, we have to create an awareness and uh, bridge the uh, silence and I understand that your initiative really follows that goal and objective and I was happy to join you. Well, thank you very much to you. I think we're at the end of a shorter uh, session. You talked about the party. As I said, get off the chair and um, join the party. Okay, I've been reminded uh, by my um, animal accompaniment here. Um, so I just simply say goodbye, have fun, have a nice Friday. Uh, and um, nice Friday evening and have a good weekend and remember that we can only keep operating this committee if we get financial support so I uh, could mention it uh, because uh, we're headed for a, a birthday um, you might make a birthday present not to me but to the committee um, so 